Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 22 of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Nous causâmes longtemps, et l'été simple et bonne. Ne sachant pas le mal, elle faisait le bien. Des richesses du cœur, elle me fit l'amant. Et tout en écoutant, comme le cœur se donne, sans oser y penser, je lui donnai le mien. Elle importa ma vie, et n'en sous jamais rien. Alfred de Musset Will Ladislaw was delightfully agreeable at dinner the next day, and gave no opportunity for Mr. Casabon to show disapprobation. On the contrary, it seemed to Dorothea that Will had a happier way of drawing her husband into conversation and of deferentially listening to him than she had ever observed in any one before. To be sure, the listeners about Tipton were not highly gifted. Will talked a good deal of himself, but what he said was thrown in with such rapidity and with such an unimportant air of saying something by the way that it seemed a gay little chime after the great bell. If Will was not always perfect, this was certainly one of his good days. He described touches of incident among the poor people in Rome, only to be seen by one who could move about freely. He found himself in agreement with Mr. Casabon as to the unsound opinions of Middleton concerning the relations of Judaism and Catholicism, and passed easily to a half-enthusiastic, half-playful picture of the enjoyment he got out of the very miscellaneousness of Rome, which made the mind flexible with constant comparison, and saved you from seeing the world's ages as a set of box-like partitions without vital connection. Mr. Casabon's studies, Will observed, had always been of too broad a kind for that, and he had perhaps never felt any such sudden effect, but for himself he confessed that Rome had given him quite a new sense of history as a whole. The fragments stimulated his imagination and made him constructive. Then, occasionally, but not too often, he appealed to Dorothea and discussed what she said, as if her sentiment were an item to be considered in the final judgment even of the Madonna di Foligno or the Laocoon. A sense of contributing to form the world's opinion makes conversation particularly cheerful, and Mr. Casabon, too, was not without pride in his young wife, who spoke better than most women, as, indeed, he had perceived in choosing her. Since things were going on so pleasantly, Mr. Casabon's statement that his labors in the library would be suspended for a couple of days— and that after a brief renewal he should have no further reason for staying in Rome, encouraged Will to urge that Mrs. Casabon should not go away without seeing a studio or two. Would not Mr. Casabon take her? That sort of thing ought not to be missed. It was quite special. 
it was a form of life that grew like a small fresh vegetation with its population of insects on huge fossils will would be happy to conduct them not to anything wearisome only to a few examples mr casaubon seeing dorothea look earnestly towards him could not but ask her if she would be interested in such visits he was now at her service during the whole day and it was agreed that will should come on the morrow and drive with them will could not omit thorwaldsen a living celebrity about whom even mr casaubon inquired but before the day was far advanced he led the way to the studio of his friend adolf naumann whom he mentioned as one of the chief renovators of christian art one of those who had not only revived but expanded that grand conception of supreme events as mysteries at which the successive ages were spectators and in relation to which the great souls of all periods became as it were contemporaries will added that he had made himself naumann's pupil for the nonce i have been making some oil sketches under him said will i hate copying i must put something of my own in naumann has been painting the saints drawing the car of the church and i have been making a sketch of marlowe's tamburlaine driving the conquered kings in his chariot i am not so ecclesiastical as naumann and i sometimes twit him with his excess of meaning but this time i mean to outdo him in breadth of intention i take tamburlaine in his chariot for the tremendous course in the world's physical history lashing on the harnessed dynasties in my opinion that is a good mythical interpretation will here looked at mr casaubon who received this off-hand treatment of symbolism very uneasily and bowed with a neutral air the sketch must be very grand if it conveys so much said dorothea i should need some explanation even of the meaning you give do you intend tamburlaine to represent earthquakes and volcanoes oh yes said will laughing and migrations of races and clearings of forests and america and the steam-engine everything you can imagine what a difficult kind of shorthand said dorothea smiling towards her husband it would require all your knowledge to be able to read it mr casaubon blinked furtively at will he had a suspicion that he was being laughed at but it was not possible to include dorothea in the suspicion they found naumann painting industriously but no model was present his pictures were advantageously arranged and his own plain vivacious person set off by a dove-coloured blouse and a maroon velvet cap so that everything was as fortunate as if he had expected the beautiful young english lady exactly at that time the painter in his confident english gave little dissertations on his finished and unfinished subjects seeming to observe mr casaubon as much as he did dorothea will burst in here and there with ardent words of praise making out particular merits in his friend's work and dorothea felt that she was getting quite new notions as to the significance of madonnas seated under inexplicable canopied thrones with the simple country as a background and of saints with architectural models in their hands or knives accidentally wedged in their skulls some things which had seemed monstrous to her were gathering intelligibility and even a natural meaning 
but all this was apparently a branch of knowledge in which Mr. Casaubon had not interested himself. I think I would rather feel that painting is beautiful than have to read it as an enigma, but I should learn to understand these pictures sooner than yours with the very wide meaning, said Dorothea, speaking to Will. Don't speak of my painting before Naumann, said Will. He will tell you it's all fisherai, which is his most opprobrious word. Is that true? said Dorothea, turning her sincere eyes on Naumann, who made a slight grimace and said, Oh, he does not mean it seriously with painting. His walk must be the belle lettre. That is wide. Naumann's pronunciation of the vowel seemed to stretch the word satirically. Will did not half like it, but managed to laugh, and Mr. Casaubon, while he felt some disgust at the artist's German accent, began to entertain a little respect for his judicious severity. The respect was not diminished when Naumann, after drawing Will aside for a moment and looking, first at a large canvas, then at Mr. Casaubon, came forward again and said, "'My friend Ladislaw thinks you will pardon me, sir, if I say that a sketch of your head would be invaluable to me for the St. Thomas Aquinas in my picture there. It is too much to ask, but I so seldom see just what I want, the idealistic in the real.' "'You astonish me greatly, sir,' said Mr. Casaubon, his looks improved with a glow of delight. But if my poor physiognomy, which I have been accustomed to regard as of the commonest order, can be of any use to you in furnishing some traits for the angelical doctor, I shall feel honoured. That is to say, if the operation will not be a lengthy one, and if Mrs. Casaubon will not object to the delay. As for Dorothea, nothing could have pleased her more unless it had been a miraculous voice pronouncing Mr. Casaubon the wisest and worthiest among the sons of men. In that case her tottering faith would have become firm again. Naumann's apparatus was at hand in wonderful completeness, and the sketch went on at once as well as the conversation. Dorothea sat down and subsided into calm silence, feeling happier than she had done for a long while before. Every one about her seemed good, and she said to herself that Rome, if she had only been less ignorant, would have been full of beauty, its sadness would have been winged with hope. No nature could be less suspicious than hers. When she was a child she believed in the gratitude of wasps and the honorable susceptibility of sparrows, and was proportionately indignant when their baseness was made manifest. The adroit artist was asking Mr. Casaubon questions about English politics, which brought long answers, and Will, meanwhile, had perched himself on some steps in the background overlooking all. Presently Naumann said, "'Now, if I could lay this by for half an hour and take it up again, come and look, Ladislaw. I think it is perfect so far.' Will vented those adjuring interjections which imply that admiration is too strong for syntax, and Naumann said in a tone of piteous regret, "'Ah, now, if I could but have had more! But you have other engagements. I could not ask it, or even to come again to-morrow.' "'Oh, let us stay,' said Dorothea. "'We have nothing to do to-day except go about, have we?' she added, 
looking entreatingly at Mr. Casaubon. It would be a pity not to make the head as good as possible. "'I am at your service, sir, in the matter,' said Mr. Casaubon, with polite condescension. "'Having given up the interior of my head to idleness, it is as well that the exterior should work in this way.' "'You are unspeakably good. Now I am happy,' said Naumann, and then went on in German to Will, pointing here and there to the sketch, as if he were considering that. Putting it aside for a moment, he looked round vaguely, as if seeking some occupation for his visitors, and afterwards turning to Mr. Casaubon said, "'Perhaps the beautiful bride, the gracious lady, would not be unwilling to let me fill up the time by trying to make a slight sketch of her. Not, of course, as you see, for that picture, only as a single study.' Mr. Casaubon, bowing, doubted not that Mrs. Casaubon would oblige him, and Dorothea said at once, "'Where shall I put myself?' Naumann was all apologies in asking her to stand, and allow him to adjust her attitude, to which she submitted without any of the affected airs and laughs frequently thought necessary on such occasions, when the painter said, "'It is as Santa Clara that I want you to stand, leaning so with your cheek against your hand. So. Looking at that stool, please, so.' Will was divided between the inclination to fall at the saint's feet and kiss her robe, and the temptation to knock Nauman down while he was adjusting her arm. All this was impudence and desecration, and he repented that he had brought her. The artist was diligent, and Will, recovering himself, moved about and occupied Mr. Casaubon as ingeniously as he could but he did not, in the end, prevent the time from seeming long to that gentleman, as was clear from his expressing a fear that Mrs. Casaubon would be tired. Naumann took the hint and said, "'Now, sir, if you can oblige me again, I will release the lady-wife.' So Mr. Casaubon's patience held out further, and, when after all it turned out that the head of St. Thomas Aquinas would be more perfect if another sitting could be had, it was granted for the morrow. On the morrow Santa Clara, too, was retouched more than once. The result of all was so far from displeasing to Mr. Casaubon that he arranged for the purchase of the picture in which St. Thomas Aquinas sat among the doctors of the church in a disputation too abstract to be represented, but listened to with more or less attention by an audience above. The Santa Clara, which was spoken of in the second place, Naumann declared himself to be dissatisfied with. He could not, in conscience, engage to make a worthy picture of it. So, about the Santa Clara, the arrangement was conditional. I will not dwell on Naumann's jokes at the expense of Mr. Casaubon that evening, or on his dithyrams about Dorothea's charm, in all which Will joined, but with a difference. No sooner did Naumann mention any detail of Dorothea's beauty then Will got exasperated at his presumption. There was grossness in his choice of the most ordinary words, and what business had he to talk of her lips? She was not a woman to be spoken of as other women were. Will could not say just what he thought, but he became irritable. And yet, when after some resistance he had consented to take the Casabons to his friend's studio, he had been allured by the gratification of his pride in being the person who could grant Naumann such an opportunity 
of studying her loveliness, or rather her divineness, for the ordinary phrases which might apply to mere bodily prettiness were not applicable to her. Certainly all Tipton and its neighborhood, as well as Dorothea herself, would have been surprised at her beauty being made so much of. In that part of the world Miss Brooke had only been a fine young woman. Oblige me by letting the subject drop, Nauman. Mrs. Casaubon is not to be talked of as if she were a model, said Will. Nauman stared at him. Schön, I will talk of my Aquinas. The head is not a bad type, after all. I dare say the great scholastic himself would have been flattered to have his portrait asked for. Nothing like these starchy doctors for vanity. It was as I thought. He cared much less for her portrait than his own. He's a cursed, white-blooded, pedantic coxcomb, said Will, with gnashing impetuosity. His obligations to Mr. Casaubon were not known to his hearer, but Will himself was thinking of them, and wishing that he could discharge them all by a check. Nauman gave a shrug and said, "'It is good they go away soon, my dear. They are spoiling your fine temper.' All Will's hope and contrivance were now concentrated on seeing Dorothea when she was alone. He only wanted to be something more special in her remembrance than he could yet believe himself likely to be. He was rather impatient under that open, ardent goodwill, which he saw was her usual state of feeling. The remote worship of a woman, throned out of their reach, plays a great part in men's lives, but in most cases the worshipper longs for some queenly recognition, some approving sign by which his soul's sovereign may cheer him without descending from her high place. That was precisely what Will wanted. But there were plenty of contradictions in his imaginative demands. It was beautiful to see how Dorothea's eyes turned with wifely anxiety and beseeching to Mr. Casaubon. She would have lost some of her halo if she had been without that duteous preoccupation. And yet at the next moment the husband's sandy absorption of such nectar was too intolerable, and Will's longing to say damaging things about him was perhaps not the less tormenting because he felt the strongest reasons for restraining it. Will had not been invited to dine the next day. Hence he persuaded himself that he was bound to call, and that the only eligible time was the middle of the day, when Mr. Casaubon would not be at home. Dorothea, who had not been made aware that her former reception of Will had displeased her husband, had no hesitation about seeing him, especially as he might come to pay a farewell visit. When he entered she was looking at some cameos which she had been buying for Celia. She greeted Will as if his visit were quite a matter of course, and said at once, having a cameo bracelet in her hand, "'I am so glad you are come. Perhaps you understand all about cameos and can tell me if these are really good. I wished to have you with us in choosing them, but Mr. Casaubon objected. He thought there was not time.' He will finish his work tomorrow, and we shall go away in three days. I have been uneasy about these cameos. Pray sit down and look at them. I am not particularly knowing, but there can be no great mistake about these little Homeric bits. They are exquisitely neat. And the color is fine. It will just suit you. Oh, they are for my sister, who has a quite different complexion. 
You saw her with me at Lowick. She is light-haired and very pretty, at least I think so. We were never so long away from each other in our lives before. She is a great pet and never was naughty in her life. I found out before I came away that she wanted me to buy her some cameos, and I should be sorry for them not to be good, after their kind. Dorothea added the last words with a smile. "'You seem not to care about cameos,' said Will, seating himself at some distance from her, and observing her while she closed the cases. "'No, frankly, I don't think them a great object in life,' said Dorothea. "'I fear you are a heretic about art generally. How is that? I should have expected you to be very sensitive to the beautiful everywhere.' "'I suppose I am dull about many things,' said Dorothea simply. "'I should like to make life beautiful. I mean, everybody's life. And then all this immense expense of art, that seems somehow to lie outside life and to make it no better for the world, pains one. It spoils my enjoyment of anything when I am made to think that most people are shut out from it.' "'I call that the fanaticism of sympathy,' said Will impetuously. You might say the same of landscape, of poetry, of all refinement. If you carried it out, you ought to be miserable in your own goodness, and turn evil that you might have no advantage over others. The best piety is to enjoy, when you can. You are doing the most, then, to save the earth's character as an agreeable planet, and enjoyment radiates. It is of no use to try and take care of all the world, that is being taken care of when you feel delight, in art or in anything else. Would you turn all the youth of the world into a tragic chorus, wailing and moralizing over misery? I suspect that you have some false belief in the virtues of misery, and want to make your life a martyrdom. Will had gone further than he intended, and checked himself but Dorothea's thought was not taking just the same direction as his own, and she answered without any special emotion. "'Indeed, you mistake me. I am not a sad, melancholy creature. I am never unhappy long together. I am angry and naughty, not like Celia. I have a great outburst, and then all seems glorious again. I cannot help believing in glorious things in a blind sort of way.' I should be quite willing to enjoy the art here, but there is so much that I don't know the reason of, so much that seems to me a consecration of ugliness rather than beauty. The painting and sculpture may be wonderful, but the feeling is often low and brutal, and sometimes even ridiculous. Here and there I see what takes me at once as noble, something that I might compare with the Alban Mountains or the sunset from the Pincian Hill, but that makes it the greater pity that there is so little of the best kind among all that mass of things over which men have toiled so. Of course there is always a great deal of poor work. The rarer things want that soil to grow in. Oh, dear, said Dorothea, taking up that thought into the chief current of her anxiety. I see it must be very difficult to do anything good. I have often felt since I have been in Rome that most of our lives would look much uglier and more bungling than the pictures if they could be put on the wall. 
Dorothea parted her lips again as if she were going to say more, but changed her mind and paused. "'You are too young. It is an anachronism for you to have such thoughts,' said Will, energetically, with a quick shake of the head habitual to him. "'You talk as if you had never known any youth. It is monstrous, as if you had had a vision of Hades in your childhood, like the boy in the legend.' You have been brought up in some of those horrible notions that choose the sweetest women to devour, like minotaurs. And now you will go to be shut up in that stone prison at Lowick. You will be buried alive. It makes me savage to think of it. I would rather never have seen you than think of you with such a prospect. Will again feared that he had gone too far. But the meaning we attach to words depends on our feeling and his tone of angry regret had so much kindness in it for Dorothea's heart, which had always been giving out ardor, and had never been fed with much from the living things around her, that she felt a new sense of gratitude, and answered with a gentle smile, "'It is very good of you to be anxious about me. It is because you did not like Lowick yourself. You had your heart set on another kind of life.' but Lowick is my chosen home. The last sentence was spoken with an almost solemn cadence, and Will did not know what to say, since it would not be useful for him to embrace her slippers and tell her that he would die for her. It was clear that she required nothing of the sort, and they were both silent for a moment or two, when Dorothea began again with an air of saying at last what had been in her mind beforehand. I wanted to ask you again about something you said the other day. Perhaps it was half of it your lively way of speaking. I notice that you like to put things strongly. I myself often exaggerate when I speak hastily. What was it? said Will, observing that she spoke with a timidity quite new in her. I have a hyperbolical tongue. It catches fire as it goes. I dare say I shall have to retract. I mean what you said about the necessity of knowing German. I mean for the subjects that Mr. Casaubon is engaged in. I have been thinking about it, and it seems to me that with Mr. Casaubon's learning he must have before him the same materials as German scholars, has he not? Dorothea's timidity was due to an indistinct consciousness that she was in the strange situation of consulting a third person about the adequacy of Mr. Casaubon's learning. "'Not exactly the same materials,' said Will, thinking that he would be duly reserved. "'He is not an Orientalist, you know. He does not profess to have more than second-hand knowledge there. But there are very valuable books about antiquities which were written a long while ago by scholars who knew nothing about these modern things, and they are still used.' Why should Mr. Casaubon's not be valuable like theirs? said Dorothea, with more remonstrant energy. She was impelled to have the argument aloud, which she was having in her own mind. That depends on the line of study taken, said Will, also getting a tone of rejoinder. The subject Mr. Casaubon has chosen is as changing as chemistry. New discoveries are constantly making new points of view. Who wants a system on the basis of the four elements, or a book to refute Paracelsus? 
do you not see that it is no use now to be crawling a little way after men of the last century men like bryant and correcting their mistakes living in a lumber-room and furbishing up broken-legged theories about chus and mizraim how can you bear to speak so lightly said dorothea with a look between sorrow and anger if it were as you say what could be sadder than so much ardent labor all in vain i wonder it does not affect you more painfully if you really think that a man like mr casaubon of so much goodness power and learning should in any way fail in what has been the labor of his best years she was beginning to be shocked that she had got to such a point of supposition and indignant with will for having led her to it you question me about a matter of fact not of feeling said will but if you wish to punish me for the fact i submit i am not in a position to express my feeling toward mr casaubon it would be at best a pensioner's eulogy pray excuse me said dorothea colouring deeply i am aware as you say that i am in fault in having introduced the subject indeed i am wrong altogether failure after long perseverance is much grander than never to have a striving good enough to be called a failure i quite agree with you said will determined to change the situation so much so that i have made up my mind not to run that risk of never attaining a failure mr casaubon's generosity has perhaps been dangerous to me and i mean to renounce the liberty it has given me i mean to go back to england shortly and work my own way depend on nobody else than myself that is fine i respect that feeling said dorothea with returning kindness but mr casaubon i am sure has never thought of anything in the matter except what was most for your welfare she has obstinacy and pride enough to serve instead of love now she has married him said will to himself aloud he said rising i shall not see you again oh stay till mr casaubon comes said dorothea earnestly i am so glad we met in rome i wanted to know you and i have made you angry said will i have made you think ill of me oh no my sister tells me i am always angry with people who do not say just what i like but i hope i am not given to think ill of them in the end i am usually obliged to think ill of myself for being so impatient still you don't like me i have made myself an unpleasant thought to you not at all said dorothea with the most open kindness i like you very much will was not quite contented thinking that he would apparently have been of more importance if he had been disliked he said nothing but looked dull not to say sulky and i am quite interested to see what you will do dorothea went on cheerfully i believe devoutly in a natural difference of vocation if it were not for that belief i suppose i should be very narrow there are so many things besides painting that i am quite ignorant of you would hardly believe how little i have taken in of music and literature which you know so much of i wonder what your vocation will turn out to be perhaps you will be a poet that depends to be a poet is to have a soul so quick to discern that no shade of quality escapes it and so quick to feel that 
discernment is but a hand playing with finely ordered variety on the chords of emotion a soul in which knowledge passes instantaneously into feeling and feeling flashes back as a new organ of knowledge one may have that condition by fits only but you leave out the poems said dorothea i think they are wanted to complete the poet i understand what you mean about knowledge passing into feeling for that seems to be just what i experience but i am sure i could never produce a poem you are a poem and that is to be the best part of a poet what makes up the poet's consciousness in his best moods said will showing such originality as we all share with the morning and the springtime and other endless renewals i am very glad to hear it said dorothea laughing out her words in a bird-like modulation and looking at will with playful gratitude in her eyes what very kind things you say to me i wish i could ever do anything that would be what you call kind that i could ever be of the slightest service to you i fear i shall never have the opportunity will spoke with fervor oh yes said dorothea cordially it will come and i shall remember how well you wish me i quite hoped that we should be friends when i first saw you because of your relationship to mr casaubon there was a certain liquid brightness in her eyes and will was conscious that his own were obeying a law of nature and filling too the allusion to mr casaubon would have spoiled all if anything at that moment could have spoiled the subduing power the sweet dignity of her noble unsuspicious inexperience and there is one thing even now that you can do said dorothea rising and walking a little way under the strength of a recurring impulse promise me that you will not again to any one speak of that subject i mean about mr casaubon's writings i mean in that kind of way it was i who led to it it was my fault but promise me she had returned from her brief pacing and stood opposite will looking gravely at him certainly i will promise you said will reddening however if he never said a cutting word about mr casaubon again and left off receiving favors from him it would clearly be permissible to hate him the more the poet must know how to hate says goethe and will was at last ready with that accomplishment he said that he must now go without waiting for mr casaubon whom he would come to take leave of at the last moment dorothea gave him her hand and they exchanged a simple good-bye but going out of the porte cochere he met mr casaubon and that gentleman expressing the best wishes for his cousin politely waived the pleasure of any further leave-taking on the morrow which would be sufficiently crowded with the preparations for departure i have something to tell you about our cousin mr ladislaw which i think will heighten your opinion of him said dorothea to her husband in the course of the evening she had mentioned immediately on his entering that will had just gone away and would come again but mr casaubon had said i met him outside and we made our final adieu i believe saying this with the air and tone by which we might imply that any subject whether private or public 
does not interest us enough to wish for a further remark upon it. So Dorothea had waited. "'What is that, my love?' said Mr. Casaubon. He always said my love when his manner was the coldest. "'He has made up his mind to leave off wandering at once, and to give up his dependence on your generosity. He means soon to go back to England and work his own way.' I thought you would consider that a good sign, said Dorothea, with an appealing look into her husband's neutral face. Did he mention the precise order of occupation to which he would addict himself? No, but he said that he felt the danger which lay for him in your generosity. Of course he will write to you about it. Do you not think better of him for his resolve? I shall await his communication on the subject, said Mr. Casaubon. I told him I was sure that the thing you considered in all you did for him was his own welfare. I remembered your goodness in what you said about him when I first saw him at Lowick, said Dorothea, putting her hand on her husband's. I had a duty towards him, said Mr. Casaubon, laying his other hand on Dorothea's, in conscientious acceptance of her caress, but with a glance which he could not hinder from being uneasy. The young man, I confess, is not otherwise an object of interest to me, nor need we, I think, discuss his future course, which it is not ours to determine beyond the limits which I have sufficiently indicated. Dorothea did not mention Will again. End of chapter 22《and, though no such immaterial burden could depress that buoyant-hearted young gentleman for many hours together, there were circumstances connected with his debt which made the thought of it unusually importunate. The creditor was Mr. Bainbridge, a horse-dealer of the neighborhood, whose company was much sought in Middlemarch by young men understood to be addicted to pleasure. During the vacations, Fred had naturally required more amusements than he had ready money for, and Mr. Bainbridge had been accommodating enough not only to trust him for the hire of the horses and the accidental expense of ruining a fine hunter, but also to make a small advance by which he might be able to meet some losses at billiards. The total debt was a hundred and sixty pounds. Bainbridge was in no alarm about his money, being sure that young Vincy had backers, but he had required something to show for it, and Fred had at first given him a bill with his own signature. Three months later he had renewed this bill with the signature of Caleb Garth. On both occasions Fred had felt confident that he should meet the bill himself, having ample funds at his disposal in his own hopefulness. You will hardly demand that his confidence should have a basis in external facts. Such confidence, we know, is something less coarse and materialistic. It is a comfortable disposition leading us to expect that the wisdom of providence or the folly of our friends, the mysteries of luck 
or the still greater mystery of our high individual value in the universe, will bring about agreeable issues, such as are consistent with our good taste and costume, and our general preference for the best style of a thing. Fred felt sure that he should have a present from his uncle, that he should have a run of luck, that by dint of swapping he should gradually metamorphose a horse worth forty pounds into a horse that would fetch a hundred at any moment, judgment being always equivalent to an unspecified sum in hard cash. And, in any case, even supposing negations which only a morbid distrust could imagine, Fred had always, at that time, his father's pocket as a last resource, so that his assets of hopefulness had a sort of gorgeous superfluity about them. Of what might be the capacity of his father's pocket, Fred had only a vague notion. Was not trade elastic? And would not the deficiencies of one year be made up for by the surplus of another? The Vincys lived in an easy, profuse way, not with any new ostentation, but according to the family habits and traditions, so that the children had no standard of economy, and the elder ones retained some of their infantine notion that their father might pay for anything if he would. Mr. Vincy himself had expensive Middlemarch habits, spent money on coursing, on his cellar, and on dinner-giving, while Mamma had those running accounts with tradespeople, which give a cheerful sense of getting everything one wants without any question of payment. But it was in the nature of fathers, Fred knew, to bully one about expenses. There was always a little storm over his extravagance if he had to disclose a debt, and Fred disliked bad weather within doors. He was too filial to be disrespectful to his father, and he bore the thunder with the certainty that it was transient. But in the meantime it was disagreeable to see his mother cry, and also to be obliged to look sulky instead of having fun. For Fred was so good-tempered that if he looked glum under scolding, it was chiefly for propriety's sake. The easier course, plainly, was to renew the bill with a friend's signature. Why not? With the superfluous securities of hope at his command, there was no reason why he should not have increased other people's liabilities to any extent. But for the fact that men whose names were good for anything were usually pessimists, indisposed to believe that the universal order of things would necessarily be agreeable to an agreeable young gentleman. With a favor to ask, we review our list of friends, do justice to their more amiable qualities, forgive their little offenses, and, concerning each in turn, try to arrive at the conclusion that he will be eager to oblige us, our own eagerness to be obliged being as communicable as other warmth. Still, there is always a certain number who are dismissed as but moderately eager until the others have refused, and it happened that Fred checked off all his friends but one, on the ground that applying to them would be disagreeable being implicitly convinced that he, at least, whatever might be maintained about mankind generally, had a right to be free from anything disagreeable, that he should ever fall into a thoroughly unpleasant position, wear trousers shrunk with washing, eat cold mutton, have to walk for want of a horse, or to duck under in any sort of way, 
was an absurdity irreconcilable with those cheerful intuitions implanted in him by nature and fred winced under the idea of being looked down upon as wanting funds for small debts thus it came to pass that the friend whom he chose to apply to was at once the poorest and the kindest namely caleb garth the garths were very fond of fred as he was of them for when he and rosamond were little ones and the garths were better off the slight connection between the two families through mr featherstone's double marriage the first to mr garth's sister and the second to mrs vincy's had led to an acquaintance which was carried on between the children rather than the parents the children drank tea together out of their toy teacups and spent whole days together in play mary was a little hoyden and fred at six years old thought her the nicest girl in the world making her his wife with a brass ring which he had cut from an umbrella through all the stages of his education he had kept his affection for the garths and his habit of going to their house as a second home though any intercourse between them and the elders of his family had long ceased even when caleb garth was prosperous the vincys were on condescending terms with him and his wife for there were nice distinctions of rank in middlemarch and though old manufacturers could not any more than dukes be connected with none but equals they were conscious of an inherent social superiority which was defined with great nicety in practice though hardly expressible theoretically since then mr garth had failed in the building business which he had unfortunately added to his other avocations of surveyor valuer and agent had conducted that business for a time entirely for the benefit of his assignees and had been living narrowly exerting himself to the utmost that he might after all pay twenty shillings in the pound he had now achieved this and from all who did not think it a bad precedent his honourable exertions had won him due esteem but in no part of the world is genteel visiting founded on esteem in the absence of suitable furniture and complete dinner service mrs vincy had never been at her ease with mrs garth and frequently spoke of her as a woman who had to work for her bread meaning that mrs garth had been a teacher before her marriage in which case an intimacy with lindley murray and mangnall's questions was something like a draper's discrimination of calico trademarks or a courier's acquaintance with foreign countries no woman who was better off needed that sort of thing. And since Mary had been keeping Mr. Featherstone's house, Mrs. Vincy's want of liking for the Garths had been converted into something more positive, by alarm lest Fred should engage himself to this plain girl, whose parents lived in such a small way. Fred, being aware of this, never spoke at home of his visits to Mrs. Garth, which had of late become more frequent, the increasing ardor of his affection for Mary inclining him the more towards those who belonged to her. Mr. Garth had a small office in town, and to this Fred went with his request. He obtained it without much difficulty, for a large amount of painful experience had not sufficed to make Caleb Garth cautious about his own affairs, or distrustful of his fellow men, when they had not proved themselves untrustworthy and he had the highest opinion of fred was sure the lad would turn out well an open affectionate fellow with a good bottom to his character 
you might trust him for anything. Such was Caleb's psychological argument. He was one of those rare men who are rigid to themselves and indulgent to others. He had a certain shame about his neighbor's errors, and never spoke of them willingly. Hence he was not likely to divert his mind from the best mode of hardening timber and other ingenious devices in order to preconceive those errors. If he had to blame any one, it was necessary for him to move all the papers within his reach, or describe various diagrams with his stick, or make calculations with the odd money in his pocket, before he could begin. And he would rather do other men's work than find fault with their doing. I fear he was a bad disciplinarian. When Fred stated the circumstances of his debt, his wish to meet it without troubling his father, and the certainty that the money would be forthcoming so as to cause no one any inconvenience, Caleb pushed his spectacles upward, listened, looked into his favorite's clear young eyes, and believed him, not distinguishing confidence about the future from veracity about the past but he felt that it was an occasion for a friendly hint as to conduct, and that before giving his signature he must give a rather strong admonition. Accordingly, he took the paper and lowered his spectacles, measured the space at his command, reached his pen and examined it, dipped it in the ink and examined it again, then pushed the paper a little away from him, lifted up his spectacles again, showed a deepened depression in the outer angle of his bushy eyebrows, which gave his face a peculiar mildness. Pardon these details for once, you would have learned to love them if you had known Caleb Garth, and said in a comfortable tone, It was a misfortune, eh, that breaking the horse's knees? And then these exchanges. They don't answer when you have cute jockeys to deal with. You'll be wiser another time, my boy. Whereupon Caleb drew down his spectacles and proceeded to write his signature with the care which he always gave to that performance, for whatever he did in the way of business he did well. He contemplated the large, well-proportioned letters and final flourish, with his head a trifle on one side for an instant, then handed it to Fred, said good-bye, and returned forthwith to absorption in a plan for Sir James Chetham's new farm buildings. Either because his interest in this work thrust the incident of the signature from his memory, or for some reason of which Caleb was more conscious, Mrs. Garth remained ignorant of the affair. Since it occurred, a change had come over Fred's sky, which altered the view of the distance and was the reason why his uncle Featherstone's present of money was of importance enough to make his color come and go, first with a too definite expectation, and afterwards with a proportionate disappointment. His failure in passing his examination had made his accumulation of college debts the more unpardonable by his father, and there had been an unprecedented storm at home. Mr. Vincy had sworn that if he had anything more of that sort to put up with, Fred should turn out and get his living how he could, and he had never quite recovered his good-humoured tone to his son, who had especially enraged him by saying at this stage of things that he did not want to be a clergyman, 
and would rather not go on with that. Fred was conscious that he would have been yet more severely dealt with if his family, as well as himself, had not secretly regarded him as Mr. Featherstone's heir, that old gentleman's pride in him, and apparent fondness for him, serving in the stead of more exemplary conduct, just as when a youthful nobleman steals jewellery we call the act kleptomania, speak of it with a philosophical smile, and never think of his being sent to the house of correction as if he were a ragged boy who had stolen turnips. In fact, tacit expectations of what would be done for him by Uncle Featherstone determined the angle at which most people viewed Fred Vincy in Middlemarch, and in his own consciousness what Uncle Featherstone would do for him in an emergency, or what he would do simply as an incorporated luck, formed always an immeasurable depth of aerial perspective. But that present of bank-notes, once made, was measurable, and being applied to the amount of the debt, showed a deficit which had still to be filled up either by Fred's judgment, or by luck in some other shape. For that little episode of the alleged borrowing, in which he had made his father the agent in getting the Bulstrode certificate, was a new reason against going to his father for money towards meeting his actual debt. Fred was keen enough to foresee that anger would confuse distinctions, and that his denial of having borrowed expressly on the strength of his uncle's will would be taken as a falsehood. He had gone to his father and told him one vexatious affair, and he had left another untold. In such cases, the complete revelation always produces the impression of a previous duplicity. Now Fred piqued himself on keeping clear of lies, and even fibs. He often shrugged his shoulders and made a significant grimace at what he called Rosamond's fibs. It is only brothers who can associate such ideas with a lovely girl. And rather than incur the accusation of falsehood, he would even incur some trouble and self-restraint. It was under strong inward pressure of this kind that Fred had taken the wise step of depositing the eighty pounds with his mother. It was a pity that he had not at once given them to Mr. Garth, but he meant to make the sum complete with another sixty, and, with a view to this, he had kept twenty pounds in his own pocket as a sort of seed-corn, which, planted by judgment and watered by luck, might yield more than threefold, a very poor rate of multiplication when the field is a young gentleman's infinite soul, with all the numerals at command. Fred was not a gambler. He had not that specific disease in which the suspension of the whole nervous energy on a chance or risk becomes as necessary as the dram to the drunkard. He had only the tendency to that diffusive form of gambling which has no alcoholic intensity, but is carried on with the healthiest child-fed blood, keeping up a joyous imaginative activity which fashions events according to desire, and having no fears about its own weather, only sees the advantage there must be to others in going aboard with it. Hopefulness has a pleasure in making a throw of any kind, because the prospect of success is certain, and only a more generous pleasure in offering as many as possible a share in the stake. Fred liked play, especially billiards, as he liked hunting or riding a steeplechase, 
and he only liked it the better because he wanted money and hoped to win. But the twenty pounds' worth of seed-corn had been planted in vain in the seductive green plot, all of it at least which had not been dispersed by the roadside, and Fred found himself close upon the term of payment, with no money at command beyond the eighty pounds which he had deposited with his mother. The broken-winded horse which he rode represented a present which had been made to him a long while ago by his uncle Featherstone. His father always allowed him to keep a horse, Mr. Vincy's own habits making him regard this as a reasonable demand even for a son who was rather exasperating. This horse, then, was Fred's property, and in his anxiety to meet the imminent bill he determined to sacrifice a possession without which life would certainly be worth little. He made the resolution with a sense of heroism, heroism forced on him by the dread of breaking his word to Mr. Garth, by his love for Mary, and awe of her opinion. He would start for Houndsley Horse Fair, which was to be held the next morning, and simply sell his horse, bringing back the money by coach? Well, the horse would hardly fetch more than thirty pounds, and there was no knowing what might happen. It would be folly to balk himself of luck beforehand. It was a hundred to one that some good chance would fall in his way. The longer he thought of it, the less possible it seemed that he should not have a good chance, and the less reasonable that he should not equip himself with the powder and shot for bringing it down. He would ride to Hounsley with Bainbridge, and with Horrock the vet, and without asking them anything expressly, he should virtually get the benefit of their opinion. Before he set out, Fred got the eighty pounds from his mother. Most of those who saw Fred riding out of Middlemarch in company with Bainbridge and Horrock, on his way, of course, to Hounsley Horse Fair, thought that young Vincy was pleasure-seeking as usual, but for an unwanted consciousness of grave matters on hand, he himself would have had a sense of dissipation, and of doing what might be expected of a gay young fellow. Considering that Fred was not at all coarse, that he rather looked down on the manners and speech of young men who had not been to the university, and that he had written stanzas as pastoral and unvoluptuous as his flute-playing, his attraction towards Bainbridge and Horrock was an interesting fact which even the love of horse-flesh would not wholly account for, without that mysterious influence of naming which determinates so much of mortal choice. Under any other name than pleasure, the society of Messrs. Bainbridge and Horrock must certainly have been regarded as monotonous, and to arrive with them at Hounsley on a drizzling afternoon, to get down at the Red Lion on a street shaded with coal-dust, and dine in a room furnished with a dirt-enameled map of the county, a bad portrait of an anonymous horse in a stable, His Majesty George the Fourth with legs and cravat, and various leaden spittoons, might have seemed a hard business, but for the sustaining power of nomenclature which determined that the pursuit of these things was gay. In Mr. Horrock there was certainly an apparent unfathomableness which offered to play to the imagination. Costume, at a glance, gave him a thrilling association with horses, enough to specify the hat-brim which took the slightest upward angle just to escape the suspicion of bending downwards, and nature had given him a face 
which by dint of Mongolian eyes, and a nose, mouth, and chin seeming to follow his hat-brim in a moderate inclination upwards, gave the effect of a subdued, unchangeable, sceptical smile, of all expressions the most tyrannous over a susceptible mind, and, when accompanied by adequate silence, likely to create the reputation of an invincible understanding, an infinite fund of humour, too dry to flow, and probably in a state of immovable crust, and a critical judgment which, if you could ever be fortunate enough to know it, would be the thing and no other. It is a physiognomy seen in all vocations, but perhaps it has never been more powerful over the youth of England than in a judge of horses. Mr. Horrock, at a question from Fred about his horse's fetlock, turned sideways in his saddle and watched the horse's action for the space of three minutes, then turned forward, twitched his own bridle, and remained silent with a profile neither more nor less sceptical than it had been. The part thus played in dialogue by Mr. Horrock was terribly effective. A mixture of passions was excited in Fred, a mad desire to thrash Horrock's opinion into utterance, restrained by anxiety to retain the advantage of his friendship. There was always the chance that Horrock might say something quite invaluable at the right moment. Mr. Bainbridge had more open manners, and appeared to give forth his ideas without economy. He was loud, robust, and was sometimes spoken of as being given to indulgence, chiefly in swearing, drinking, and beating his wife. Some people who had lost by him called him a vicious man, but he regarded horse-stealing as the finest of the arts, and might have argued plausibly that it had nothing to do with morality. He was undeniably a prosperous man, bore his drinking better than others bore their moderation, and, on the whole, flourished like the green bay-tree. But his range of conversation was limited, and, like the fine old tune, Drops of Brandy, gave you, after a while, a sense of returning upon itself in a way that might make weak heads dizzy. But a slight infusion of Mr. Bainbridge was felt to give tone and character to several circles in Middlemarch, and he was a distinguished figure in the bar and billiard-room at the Green Dragon. He knew some anecdotes about the heroes of the turf, and various clever tricks of marquises and viscounts, which seemed to prove that blood asserted its preeminence even among blacklegs. But the minute retentiveness of his memory was chiefly shown about the horses he had himself bought and sold, the number of miles they would trot you in no time without turning a hair being, after the lapse of years, still a subject of passionate asseveration, in which he would assist the imagination of his hearers by solemnly swearing that they never saw anything like it. In short, Mr. Bainbridge was a man of pleasure and a gay companion. Fred was subtle, and did not tell his friends that he was going to Hounsley bent on selling his horse. He wished to get indirectly at their genuine opinion of its value, not being aware that a genuine opinion was the last thing likely to be extracted from such eminent critics. It was not Mr. Bainbridge's weakness to be a gratuitous flatterer. He had never before been so much struck with the fact that this unfortunate bay was a roarer to a degree which required 
the roundest word for perdition to give you any idea of it. "'You made a bad hand at swapping when you went to anybody but me, Vincy. Why, you never threw your leg across a finer horse than that chestnut, and you gave him for this brute. If you set him cantering, he goes on like twenty sawyers. I never heard but one worse roarer in my life, and that was a roan. It belonged to Pegwell, the corn-factor. He used to drive him in his gig seven years ago, and he wanted me to take him, but I said, "'Thank you, Peg. I don't deal in wind instruments.' "'That's what I said. It went round of the country, that joke did. But what the hell! The horse was a penny trumpet to that roarer of yours.' "'Why, you said just now his was worse than mine,' said Fred, more irritable than usual. "'I said a lie, then,' said Mr. Bainbridge, emphatically. "'There wasn't a penny to choose between them.' Fred spurred his horse, and they trotted on a little way. When they slackened again, Mr. Bainbridge said, "'Not but what the roan was a better trotter than yours.' "'I'm quite satisfied with his paces, I know,' said Fred who required all the consciousness of being in gay company to support him. I say his trot is an uncommonly clean one, eh, Oric? Mr. Horrock looked before him with as complete a neutrality as if he had been a portrait by a great master. Fred gave up the fallacious hope of getting a genuine opinion, but on reflection he saw that Bainbridge's depreciation and Horrock's silence were both virtually encouraging and indicated that they thought better of the horse than they chose to say. That very evening, indeed before the fair had set in, Fred thought he saw a favorable opening for disposing advantageously of his horse, but an opening which made him congratulate himself on his foresight in bringing with him his eighty pounds. A young farmer, acquainted with Mr. Bainbridge, came into the Red Lion and entered into conversation about parting with the hunter, which he introduced at once as Diamond, implying that it was a public character. For himself he only wanted a useful hack, which would draw upon occasion, being about to marry and to give up hunting. The hunter was in a friend's stable at some little distance. There was still time for gentlemen to see it before dark. The friend's stable had to be reached through a back street where you might as easily have been poisoned without expensive drugs as in any grim street of that unsanitary period. Fred was not fortified against disgust by brandy, as his companions were, but the hope of having at last seen the horse that would enable him to make money was exhilarating enough to lead him over the same ground again the first thing in the morning. He felt sure that if he did not come to a bargain with the farmer, Bainbridge would, for the stress of circumstances, Fred felt, was sharpening his acuteness and endowing him with all the constructive power of suspicion. Bainbridge had run down Diamond in a way that he never would have done, the horse being a friend's, if he had not thought of buying it. Everyone who looked at the animal, even Horrock, was evidently impressed with its merit. To get all the advantage of being with men of this sort, you must know how to draw your inferences, and not be a spoon who takes things literally. The color of the horse was a dappled gray, and Fred happened to know that Lord Medlicote's man was on the lookout for just such a horse. After all his running down, Bainbridge let it out in the course of the evening, when the farmer was absent, that he had seen worse horses go for eighty pounds. Of course he contradicted himself twenty times over, 
but when you know what is likely to be true, you can test a man's admissions. And Fred could not but reckon his own judgment of a horse as worth something. The farmer had paused over Fred's respectable, though broken-winded steed, long enough to show that he thought it worth consideration, and it seemed probable that he would take it, with five and twenty pounds in addition, as the equivalent of diamond. In that case, Fred, when he had parted with his new horse for at least eighty pounds, would be fifty-five pounds in the pocket by the transaction, and would have a hundred and thirty-five pounds towards meeting the bill, so that the deficit temporarily thrown on Mr. Garth would at the utmost be twenty-five pounds. By the time he was hurrying on his clothes in the morning, he saw so clearly the importance of not losing this rare chance, that if Bainbridge and Horrock had both dissuaded him, he would not have been deluded into a direct interpretation of their purpose. He would have been aware that those deep hands held something else than a young fellow's interest. With regard to horses, distrust was your only clue. But skepticism, as we know, can never be thoroughly applied, else life would come to a standstill. Something we must believe in and do, and whatever that something may be called, is virtually our own judgment, even when it seems like the most slavish reliance on another. Fred believed in the excellence of his bargain, and even before the fair had well set in, had got possession of the dappled grey, at the price of his old horse and thirty pounds in addition, only five pounds more than he had expected to give. But he felt a little worried and wearied, perhaps with mental debate, and without waiting for the further gaieties of the horse fair, he set out alone on his fourteen miles' journey, meaning to take it very quietly and keep his horse fresh. End of chapter 23《not that he had been disappointed as to the possible market for his horse, but that before the bargain could be concluded with Lord Medlicote's man, this diamond, in which hope to the amount of eighty pounds had been invested, had, without the slightest warning, exhibited in the stable a most vicious energy in kicking, had just missed killing the groom, and had ended in laming himself severely by catching his leg in a rope that overhung the stable-board. There was no more redress for this than for the discovery of bad temper after marriage, which, of course, old companions were aware of before the ceremony. For some reason or other, Fred had none of his usual elasticity under this stroke of ill-fortune. He was simply aware that he had only fifty pounds, that there was no chance of his getting any more at present, and that the bill for a hundred and sixty would be presented in five days. Even if he had applied to his father on the plea that Mr. Garth should be saved from loss, Fred felt smartingly 
that his father would angrily refuse to rescue Mr. Garth from the consequence of what he would call encouraging extravagance and deceit. He was so utterly downcast that he could frame no other project than to go straight to Mr. Garth and tell him the sad truth, carrying with him the fifty pounds, and getting that sum at least safely out of his own hands. His father, being at the warehouse, did not know yet of the accident. When he did, he would storm about the vicious brute being brought into his stable, and before meeting that lesser annoyance, Fred wanted to get away with all his courage to face the greater. He took his father's nag, for he had made up his mind that, when he had told Mr. Garth, he would ride to Stone Court and confess all to Mary. In fact, it is probable that but for Mary's existence and Fred's love for her, his conscience would have been much less active, both in previously urging the debt on his thought and impelling him not to spare himself after his usual fashion by deferring an unpleasant task, but to act as directly and simply as he could. Even much stronger mortals than Fred Vincy hold half their rectitude in the mind of the being they love best. The theatre of all my actions is fallen, said an antique personage when his chief friend was dead and they are fortunate who get a theatre where the audience demands their best. Certainly it would have made a considerable difference to Fred at that time if Mary Garth had had no decided notions as to what was admirable in character. Mr. Garth was not at the office, and Fred rode on to his house, which was a little way outside the town, a homely place with an orchard in front of it, a rambling, old-fashioned, half-timbered building, which, before the town had spread, had been a farmhouse, but was now surrounded with the private gardens of the townsmen. We get the fonder of our houses if they have a physiognomy of their own, as our friends have. The Garth family, which was rather a large one, for Mary had four brothers and one sister, were very fond of their old house from which all the best furniture had long been sold. Fred liked it, too, knowing it by heart even to the attic, which smelt deliciously of apples and quinces, and until to-day he had never come to it without pleasant expectations. But his heart beat uneasily now with a sense that he should probably have to make his confession before Mrs. Garth, of whom he was rather more in awe than of her husband not that she was inclined to sarcasm and to impulsive sallies, as Mary was. In her present matronly age, at least, Mrs. Garth never committed herself by over-hasty speech, having, as she said, borne the yoke in her youth and learned self-control. She had that rare sense which discerns what is unalterable and submits to it without murmuring. Adoring her husband's virtues, she had very early made up her mind to his incapacity of minding his own interests, and had met the consequences cheerfully. She had been magnanimous enough to renounce all pride in teapots or children's frilling, and had never poured any pathetic confidences into the ears of her feminine neighbors concerning Mr. Garth's want of prudence and the sums he might have had if he had been like other men. 
Hence these fair neighbors thought her either proud or eccentric, and sometimes spoke of her to their husbands as your fine Mrs. Garth. She was not without her criticism of them in return, being more accurately instructed than most matrons in Middlemarch, and, where is the blameless woman? Apt to be a little severe towards her own sex, which, in her opinion, was framed to be entirely subordinate. On the other hand, she was disproportionately indulgent toward the failings of men, and was often heard to say that these were natural. Also, it must be admitted that Mrs. Garth was a trifle too emphatic in her resistance to what she held to be follies. The passage from governess into housewife had wrought itself a little too strongly into her consciousness, and she rarely forgot that, while her grammar and accent were above the town standard, she wore a plain cap, cooked the family dinner, and darned all the stockings. She had sometimes taken pupils in a peripatetic fashion, making them follow her about in the kitchen with their book or slate. She thought it good for them to see that she could make an excellent lather while she corrected their blunders without looking, that a woman with her sleeves tucked up above her elbows might know all about the subjunctive mood or the torrid zone, that, in short, she might possess education and other good things ending in shun, and worthy to be pronounced emphatically without being a useless doll. She made remarks to this edifying effect. She had a firm little frown on her brow, which yet did not hinder her face from looking benevolent, and her words which came forth like a procession were uttered in a fervid, agreeable contralto. Certainly, the exemplary Mrs. Garth had her droll aspects, but her character sustained her oddities, as a very fine wine sustains a flavor of skin. Towards Fred Vincy she had a motherly feeling, and had always been disposed to excuse his errors, though she would probably not have excused Mary for engaging herself to him, her daughter being included in that more rigorous judgment which she applied to her own sex. But this very fact of her exceptional indulgence towards him made it the harder to Fred that he must now inevitably sink in her opinion. And the circumstances of his visit turned out to be still more unpleasant than he had expected, for Caleb Garth had gone out early to look at some repairs not far off. Mrs. Garth at certain hours was always in the kitchen, and this morning she was carrying on several occupations at once there, making her pies at the well-scoured deal-table on one side of that airy room, observing Sally's movements at the oven and dough-tub through an open door, and giving lessons to her youngest boy and girl, who were standing opposite to her at the table, with their books and slates before them. A tub and a clothes-horse at the other end of the kitchen indicated an intermittent wash of small things also going on. Mrs. Garth, with her sleeves turned above her elbows, deftly handling her pastry, applying her rolling-pin and giving ornamental pinches, while she expounded with grammatical fervor what were the right views about the concord of verbs and pronouns with nouns of multitude or signifying many, was a sight agreeably amusing. She was of the same curly-haired, square-faced type as Mary, but handsomer, with more delicacy of feature, a pale skin, a solid matronly figure, 
and a remarkable firmness of glance. In her snowy-frilled cap she reminded one of that delightful Frenchwoman whom we have all seen marketing, basket on arm. Looking at the mother, you might hope that the daughter would become like her, which is a prospective advantage equal to a dowry, the mother too often standing behind the daughter like a malignant prophecy. Such as I am, she will shortly be. Now, let us go through that once more, said Mrs. Garth, pinching an apple puff which seemed to distract Ben, an energetic young male with a heavy brow, from due attention to the lesson. Not without regard to the import of the word as conveying unity or plurality of idea. Tell me again what that means, Ben. Mrs. Garth, like more celebrated educators, had her favorite ancient paths, and in a general wreck of society would have tried to hold her Lindley Murray above the waves. Oh, it means you must think what you mean, said Ben, rather peevishly. I hate grammar. What's the use of it? To teach you to speak and write correctly so that you can be understood, said Mrs. Garth, with severe precision. Should you like to speak as old Job does? Yes, said Ben stoutly. It's funnier. He says, yo goo. That's just as good as you go. But, he says, a ship's in the garden instead of a sheep, said Letty, with an air of superiority. You might think he meant a ship off the sea. No, you mightn't, if you weren't silly, said Ben. How could a ship off the sea come there? These things belong only to pronunciation, which is the least part of grammar, said Mrs. Garth. That apple peel is to be eaten by the pigs, Ben. If you eat it, I must give them your piece of pasty. Job has only to speak about very plain things. How do you think you would write or speak about anything more difficult, if you knew no more grammar than he does? You would use wrong words, and put words in the wrong places, and instead of making people understand you, they would turn away from you as a tiresome person. What would you do then?' "'I shouldn't care. I should leave off,' said Ben, with a sense that this was an agreeable issue where grammar was concerned. "'I see you are getting tired and stupid, Ben,' said Mrs. Garth, accustomed to these obstructive arguments from her male offspring. Having finished her pies, she moved towards the clothes-horse and said, "'Come here and tell me the story I told you on Wednesday, about Cincinnatus.' "'I know. He was a farmer,' said Ben. "'Now, Ben, he was a Roman. Let me tell,' said Letty, using her elbow contentiously. "'You silly thing. He was a Roman farmer, and he was ploughing.' "'Yes, but before that, that didn't come first. People wanted him, said Letty. Well, but you must say what sort of man he was first, insisted Ben. He was a wise man, like my father, and that made the people want his advice. And he was a brave man, and could fight. And so could my father, couldn't he, mother? Now, Ben, let me tell the story straight on as mother told it us, said Letty, frowning. Please, mother, tell Ben not to speak. "'Letty, I am ashamed of you,' said her mother, wringing out the caps from the tub. "'When your brother began, you ought to have waited to see if he could not tell the story. How rude you look, pushing and frowning, as if you wanted to conquer with your elbows. 
Cincinnatus, I am sure, would have been sorry to see his daughter behave so. Mrs. Garth delivered this awful sentence with much majesty of enunciation, and Letty felt that between repressed volubility and general disesteem, that of the Romans inclusive, life was already a painful affair. Now, Ben. Well, ah, uh, well, why, there was a great deal of fighting, and they were all blockheads, and I can't tell it just how you told it, but they wanted a man to be captain and king and everything. Dictator now, said Letty, with injured looks, and not without a wish to make her mother repent. Very well, dictator, said Ben contemptuously. But that isn't a good word. He didn't tell them to write on slates. Come, come, Ben, you are not so ignorant as that, said Mrs. Garth, carefully serious. Hark, there's a knock at the door. Run, Letty, and open it. The knock was Fred's and when Letty said that her father was not in yet, but that her mother was in the kitchen, Fred had no alternative. He could not depart from his usual practice of going to see Mrs. Garth in the kitchen if she happened to be at work there. He put his arm round Letty's neck silently, and led her into the kitchen without his usual jokes and caresses. Mrs. Garth was surprised to see Fred at this hour, but surprise was not a feeling that she was given to express, and she only said, quietly continuing her work, "'You, Fred, so early in the day? You look quite pale. Has anything happened?' "'I want to speak to Mr. Garth,' said Fred, not ready to say more. "'And to you also,' he added, after a little pause, for he had no doubt that Mrs. Garth knew everything about the bill, and he must in the end speak of it before her, if not to her solely.' "'Caleb will be in again in a few minutes,' said Mrs. Garth, who imagined some trouble between Fred and his father. "'He is sure not to be long, because he has some work at his desk that must be done this morning. Do you mind staying with me while I finish matters here?' "'But we needn't go on about Cincinnatus, need we?' said Ben, who had taken Fred's whip out of his hand, and was trying its efficiency on the cat. "'No, go out now. But put that whip down.' "'How very mean of you to whip poor old Tortoise! "'Pray take the whip from him, Fred.' "'Come, old boy, give it me,' said Fred, putting out his hand. "'Will you let me ride on your horse to-day?' said Ben, rendering up the whip with an air of not being obliged to do it. "'Not to-day. Another time. I'm not riding my own horse.' "'Shall you see Mary to-day?' "'Yes, I think so,' said Fred, with an unpleasant twinge. "'Tell her to come home soon, and play at forfeits, and make fun.' "'Enough, enough, Ben. Run away,' said Mrs. Garth, seeing that Fred was teased. "'Are Letty and Ben your only pupils now, Mrs. Garth?' said Fred, when the children were gone, and it was needful to say something that would pass the time. He was not yet sure whether he should wait for Mr. Garth, or use any good opportunity in conversation to confess to Mrs. Garth herself give her the money and ride away. One, only one. Fanny Hackbutt comes at half-past eleven. I'm not getting a great income now, said Mrs. Garth, smiling. I am at a low ebb with pupils, but I have saved my little purse for Alfred's premium. I have ninety-two pounds. He can go to Mr. Hanmer's now. He is just at the right age. 
This did not lead well towards the news that Mr. Garth was on the brink of losing ninety-two pounds and more. Fred was silent. "'Young gentlemen who go to college are rather more costly than that,' Mrs. Garth innocently continued, pulling out the edging on a cap border. "'And Caleb thinks that Alfred will turn out a distinguished engineer. He wants to give the boy a good chance. There he is. I hear him coming in. We will go to him in the parlor, shall we?' When they entered the parlor, Caleb had thrown down his hat and was seated at his desk. "'What, Fred, my boy,' he said, in a tone of mild surprise, holding his pen still undipped. "'You are here betimes.' But, missing the usual expression of cheerful greeting in Fred's face, he immediately added, "'Is there anything up at home? Anything the matter?' "'Yes, Mr. Garth. I am come to tell something that I am afraid will give you a bad opinion of me.' I am come to tell you and Mrs. Garth that I can't keep my word. I can't find the money to meet the bill after all. I have been unfortunate. I have only got these fifty pounds towards the hundred and sixty. While Fred was speaking, he had taken out the notes and laid them on the desk before Mr. Garth. He had burst forth at once with the plain fact, feeling boyishly miserable and without verbal resources. Mrs. Garth was mutely astonished, and looked at her husband for an explanation. Caleb blushed, and after a little pause said, "'Oh, I didn't tell you, Susan. I put my name to a bill for Fred. It was for a hundred and sixty pounds. He made sure he could meet it himself.' There was an evident change in Mrs. Garth's face, but it was like a change below the surface of water which remains smooth. She fixed her eyes on Fred, saying, "'I suppose you have asked your father for the rest of the money, and he has refused you.' "'No,' said Fred, biting his lip and speaking with more difficulty. "'But I know it will be of no use to ask him, and, unless it were of use, I should not like to mention Mr. Garth's name in the matter.' "'It has come at an unfortunate time,' said Caleb, in his hesitating way, looking down at the notes and nervously fingering the paper. "'Christmas upon us. I'm rather hard up just now. You see, I have to cut out everything, like a tailor with short measure. What can we do, Susan? I shall want every farthing we have in the bank. It's a hundred and ten pounds, the deuce take it. I must give you the ninety-two pounds that I have put by for Alfred's premium,' said Mrs. Garth gravely and decisively, though a nice ear might have discerned a slight tremor in some of the words. And I have no doubt that Mary has twenty pounds saved from her salary by this time. She will advance it. Mrs. Garth had not again looked at Fred, and was not in the least calculating what words she should use to cut him the most effectively. Like the eccentric woman she was, she was at present absorbed in considering what was to be done, and did not fancy that the end could be better achieved by bitter remarks or explosions. But she had made Fred feel for the first time something like the tooth of remorse. Curiously enough, his pain in the affair beforehand had consisted almost entirely in the sense that he must seem dishonorable, and sink in the opinion of the Garths. He had not occupied himself with the inconvenience and possible injury that his breach might occasion them. 
for this exercise of the imagination on other people's needs is not common with hopeful young gentlemen. Indeed, we are the most of us brought up in the notion that the highest motive for not doing a wrong is something irrespective of the beings who would suffer the wrong. But at this moment he suddenly saw himself as a pitiful rascal who was robbing two women of their savings. "'I shall certainly pay it all, Mrs. Garth. Ultimately,' he stammered out. "'Yes, ultimately,' said Mrs. Garth, who, having a special dislike to fine words on ugly occasions, could not now repress an epigram. "'But boys cannot well be apprenticed ultimately. They should be apprenticed at fifteen. She had never been so little inclined to make excuses for Fred. "'I was the most in the wrong, Susan,' said Caleb. "'Fred made sure of finding the money. But I'd no business to be fingering bills. I suppose you have looked all round and tried all honest means,' he added, fixing his merciful grey eyes on Fred. Caleb was too delicate to specify Mr. Featherstone. "'Yes, I have tried everything. I really have. I should have had a hundred and thirty pounds ready, but for a misfortune with a horse which I was about to sell. My uncle had given me eighty pounds, and I paid away thirty with my old horse in order to get another one which I was going to sell for eighty or more. I meant to go without a horse, but now it has turned out vicious and lamed itself.' I wish I and the horses, too, had been at the devil before I had brought this on you. There's no one else I care so much for. You and Mrs. Garth have always been so kind to me. However, it's no use saying that. You will always think me a rascal now. Fred turned round and hurried out of the room, conscious that he was getting rather womanish, and feeling confusedly that his being sorry was not of much use to the Garths. They could see him mount and quickly pass through the gate. "'I am disappointed in Fred Vincy,' said Mrs. Garth. "'I would not have believed beforehand that he could have drawn you into his debts. I knew he was extravagant, but I did not think that he would be so mean as to hang his risks on his oldest friend, who could the least afford to lose.' "'I was a fool, Susan.' "'That you were,' said the wife, nodding and smiling." but I should not have gone to publish it in the marketplace. Why should you keep such things from me? It is just so with your buttons. You let them burst off without telling me, and go out with your wristband hanging. If I had only known, I might have been ready with some better plan. You are sadly cut up, I know, Susan, said Caleb, looking feelingly at her. I can't abide your losing the money you've scraped together for Alfred. It is very well that I had scraped it together, and it is you who will have to suffer, for you must teach the boy yourself. You must give up your bad habits. Some men take to drinking, and you have taken to working without pay. You must indulge yourself a little less in that, and you must ride over to Mary and ask the child what money she has. Caleb had pushed his chair back and was leaning forward, shaking his head slowly and fitting his fingertips together with much nicety. "'Poor Mary,' he said. "'Susan,' he went on in a lowered tone, "'I'm afraid she may be fond of Fred.' "'Oh, no! She always laughs at him, and he is not likely to think of her in any other than a brotherly way.' 
Caleb made no rejoinder, but presently lowered his spectacles, drew his chair up to the desk, and said, "'Deuce take the bill! I wish it was at Hanover. These things are a sad interruption to business.' The first part of this speech comprised his whole store of maledictory expression, and was uttered with a slight snarl easy to imagine. But it would be difficult to convey to those who never heard him utter the word business, the peculiar tone of fervid veneration, of religious regard in which he wrapped it, as a consecrated symbol is wrapped in its gold-fringed linen. Caleb Garth often shook his head in meditation on the value, the indispensable might of that myriad-headed, myriad-handed labor by which the social body is fed, clothed, and housed. It had laid hold of his imagination in boyhood. The echoes of the great hammer where roof or keel were a-making, the signal shouts of the workmen, the roar of the furnace, the thunder and plash of the engine, were a sublime music to him. The felling and lading of timber, and the huge trunk vibrating star-like in the distance along the highway, the crane at work on the wharf, the piled-up produce in warehouses, the precision and variety of muscular effort wherever exact work had to be turned out, all these sights of his youth had acted on him as poetry without the aid of the poets, had made a philosophy for him without the aid of philosophers, a religion without the aid of theology. His early ambition had been to have as effective a share as possible in this sublime labor which was peculiarly defined by him with the name of business. And though he had only been a short time under a surveyor, and had been chiefly his own teacher, he knew more of land, building, and mining than most of the special men in the county. His classification of human employments was rather crude, and, like the categories of more celebrated men, would not be acceptable in these advanced times. He divided them into business, politics, preaching, learning, and amusement. He had nothing to say against the last four, but he regarded them as a reverential pagan regarded other gods than his own. In the same way, he thought very well of all ranks, but he would not himself have liked to be of any rank in which he had not such close contact with business as to get often honorably decorated with marks of dust and mortar, the damp of the engine, or the sweet soil of the woods and fields. Though he had never regarded himself as other than an orthodox Christian, and would argue on prevenient grace if the subject were proposed to him, I think his virtual divinities were good practical schemes, accurate work, and the faithful completion of undertakings. His prince of darkness was a slack workman. But there was no spirit of denial in Caleb, and the world seemed so wondrous to him that he was ready to accept any number of systems, like any number of firmaments, if they did not obviously interfere with the best land drainage, solid building, correct measuring, and judicious boring for coal. In fact, he had a reverential soul with a strong practical intelligence. But he could not manage finance. He knew values well, but he had no keenness of imagination for monetary results 
in the shape of profit and loss and having ascertained this to his cost he determined to give up all forms of his beloved business which required that talent he gave himself up entirely to the many kinds of work which he could do without handling capital and was one of those precious men within his own district whom everybody would choose to work for them because he did his work well charged very little and often declined to charge at all it is no wonder then that the garths were poor and lived in a small way however they did not mind it End of chapter twenty four Chapter twenty five of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyat. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease, and builds a heaven in hell's despair. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joy in another's loss of ease and builds a hell in heaven's despite william blake songs of experience fred vincy wanted to arrive at stone court when mary could not expect him and when his uncle was not downstairs in that case she might be sitting alone in the wainscoted parlor he left his horse in the yard to avoid making a noise on the gravel in front and entered the parlor without another notice than the noise of the door handle Mary was in her usual corner, laughing over Mrs. Piazzi's recollections of Johnson, and looking up with the fun still in her face. It gradually faded as she saw Fred approach her without speaking, and stand before her with his elbows on the mantelpiece, looking ill. She, too, was silent, only raising her eyes to him inquiringly. "'Mary,' he began, "'I am a good-for-nothing blackguard.' "'I should think one of those epithets would do at a time,' said Mary, trying to smile, but feeling alarmed. "'I know you will never think well of me any more. You will think me a liar. You will think me dishonest. You will think I didn't care for you, or your father and mother. You always do make the worst of me, I know.' "'I cannot deny that I shall think all that of you, Fred, if you give me good reasons.' but please to tell me at once what you have done. I would rather know the painful truth than imagine it. I owed money, a hundred and sixty pounds. I asked your father to put his name to a bill. I thought it would not signify to him. I made sure of paying the money myself, and I have tried as hard as I could. And now I have been so unlucky. A horse has turned out badly. I can only pay fifty pounds." and I can't ask my father for the money. He would not give me a farthing. And my uncle gave me a hundred a little while ago. So what can I do? And now your father has no ready money to spare, and your mother will have to pay away her ninety-two pounds that she has saved, and she says your savings must go too. You see what a— Oh, poor mother, poor father, said Mary, her eyes filling with tears and a little sob rising, which she tried to repress. She looked straight before her and took no notice of Fred, all the consequences at home becoming present to her. 
he too remained silent for some moments, feeling more miserable than ever. "'I wouldn't have hurt you for the world, Mary,' he said at last. "'You can never forgive me.' "'What does it matter whether I forgive you?' said Mary passionately. "'Would that make it any better for my mother to lose the money she has been earning by lessons for four years, that she might send Alfred to Mr. Hammer's? Should you think all that pleasant enough if I forgave you?' "'Say what you like, Mary. I deserve it all.' "'I don't want to say anything,' said Mary more quietly, "'and my anger is of no use.' She dried her eyes, threw aside her book, rose and fetched her sewing. Fred followed her with his eyes, hoping that they would meet hers, and in that way find access for his imploring penitence. But no, Mary could easily avoid looking upward. "'I do care about your mother's money-going,' he said, when she was seated again and sewing quickly. I wanted to ask you, Mary, don't you think that Mr. Featherstone, if you were to tell him, tell him, I mean, about apprenticing Alfred, would advance the money? My family is not fond of begging, Fred. We would rather work for our money. Besides, you say that Mr. Featherstone has lately given you a hundred pounds. He rarely makes presents, he has never made presents to us. I am sure my father will not ask him for anything, and even if I chose to beg of him, it would be of no use. I am so miserable, Mary. If you knew how miserable I am, you would be sorry for me. There are other things to be more sorry for than that. But selfish people always think their own discomfort of more importance than anything else in the world. I see enough of that every day. It is hardly fair to call me selfish. If you knew what things other young men do, you would think me a good way off the worst. I know that people who spend a great deal of money on themselves without knowing how they shall pay must be selfish. They are always thinking of what they can get for themselves, and not of what other people may lose. Any man may be unfortunate, Mary, and find himself unable to pay when he meant it. There is not a better man in the world than your father, and yet he got into trouble. "'How dare you make any comparison between my father and you, Fred?' said Mary, in a deep tone of indignation. "'He never got into trouble by thinking of his own idle pleasures, but because he was always thinking of the work he was doing for other people. And he has fared hard, and worked hard to make good everybody's loss.' "'And you think that I shall never try to make good anything, Mary. "'It is not generous to believe the worst of a man. "'When you have got any power over him, "'I think you might try and use it to make him better, "'but that is what you never do. "'However, I'm going,' Fred ended languidly. "'I shall never speak to you about anything again. "'I'm very sorry for all the trouble I've caused, that's all.' "'Mary had dropped her work out of her hand and looked up. There is often something maternal even in a girlish love, and Mary's hard experience had wrought her nature to an impressibility very different from that hard, slight thing which we call girlishness. At Fred's last words she felt an instantaneous pang, something like what a mother feels at the imagined sobs or cries of her naughty, truant child, which may lose itself and get harm. And when, looking up, her eyes met his dull, despairing glance. Her pity for him surmounted her anger 
and all her other anxieties. "'Oh, Fred, how ill you look! Sit down a moment. Don't go yet. Let me tell Uncle that you are here. He has been wondering that he has not seen you for a whole week.' Mary spoke hurriedly, saying the words that came first without knowing very well what they were, but saying them in a half-soothing, half-beseeching tone, and rising as if to go away to Mr. Featherstone. Of course Fred felt as if the clouds had parted and a gleam had come. He moved and stood in her way. "'Say one word, Mary, and I will do anything. Say you will not think the worst of me, will not give me up altogether. "'As if it were any pleasure to me to think ill of you,' said Mary, in a mournful tone, "'as if it were not very painful to me to see you an idle, frivolous creature.' How can you bear to be so contemptible, when others are working and striving, and there are so many things to be done? How can you bear to be fit for nothing in the world that is useful? And with so much good in your disposition, Fred, you might be worth a great deal. I will try to be anything you like, Mary, if you will say that you love me. I would be ashamed to say that I loved a man who must always be hanging on others, and reckoning on what they would do for him. What will you be when you are forty? Like Mr. Bowyer, I suppose, just as idle, living in Mrs. Beck's front parlor, fat and shabby, hoping somebody will invite you to dinner, spending your morning and learning a comic song. Oh, no, learning a tune on the flute. Mary's lips had begun to curl with a smile as soon as she had asked that question about Fred's future young souls are mobile, and, before she ended, her face had its full illumination of fun. To him it was like the cessation of an ache that Mary could laugh at him, and, with a passive sort of smile, he tried to reach her hand, but she slipped away quickly towards the door and said, "'I shall tell Uncle. You must see him for a moment or two. Fred secretly felt that his future was guaranteed against the fulfillment of Mary's sarcastic prophecies, apart from that anything which he was ready to do if she would define it. He never dared in Mary's presence to approach the subject of his expectations from Mr. Featherstone, and she always ignored them, as if everything depended on himself. But if ever he actually came into the property— she must recognize the change in his position. All this passed through his mind somewhat languidly before he went up to see his uncle. He stayed but a little while, excusing himself on the ground that he had a cold, and Mary did not reappear before he left the house. But as he rode home, he began to be more conscious of being ill than of being melancholy. When Caleb Garth arrived at Stone Court soon after dusk, Mary was not surprised, although he seldom had leisure for paying her a visit, and was not at all fond of having to talk with Mr. Featherstone. The old man, on the other hand, felt himself ill at ease with a brother-in-law whom he could not annoy, who did not mind about being considered poor, had nothing to ask of him, and understood all kinds of farming and mining business better than he did. But Mary had felt sure that her parents would want to see her and if her father had not come she would have obtained leave to go home for an hour or two the next day. After discussing prices during tea with Mr. Featherstone, Caleb rose to bid him good-bye, and said, 
I want to speak to you, Mary. She took a candle into another large parlor, where there was no fire, and, setting down the feeble light on the dark mahogany table, turned round to her father, and, putting her arms round his neck, kissed him with childish kisses which he delighted in, the expression of his large brows softening as the expression of a great beautiful dog softens when it's caressed. Mary was his favorite child, and, whatever Susan might say, and, right as she was on all other subjects, Caleb thought it natural that Fred or any one else should think Mary more lovable than other girls. "'I've got something to tell you, my dear,' said Caleb, in his hesitating way. "'No very good news, but then it might be worse.' "'About money, father? I think I know what it is.' "'Ay, how can that be?' You see, I've been a bit of a fool again, and put my name to a bill, and now it comes to paying, and your mother has got to part with her savings, that's the worst of it, and even they won't quite make things even. We wanted a hundred and ten pounds, your mother has ninety-two, and I have got none to spare in the bank, and she thinks that you have some savings. Oh, yes, I have more than four and twenty pounds. I thought you would come, father, so I put it in my bag. See, beautiful white notes and gold. Mary took out the folded money from her reticule and put it into her father's hand. Well, but how? We only want eighteen. Here, put the rest back, child. But how did you know about it? said Caleb, who, in his unconquerable indifference to money, was beginning to be chiefly concerned about the relation the affair might have to Mary's affections. Fred told me this morning. Ah, did he come on purpose? Yes, I think so. He was a good deal distressed. I'm afraid Fred is not to be trusted, Mary, said the father, with hesitating tenderness. He means better than he acts, perhaps. But I should think it a pity for anybody's happiness to be wrapped up in him, and so would your mother." "'And so should I, father,' said Mary, not looking up, but putting the back of her father's hand against her cheek. "'I don't want to pry, my dear, but I was afraid there might be something between you and Fred, and I wanted to caution you. "'You see, Mary—here Caleb's voice became more tender. He had been pushing his hat about on the table and looking at it, but finally he turned his eyes on his daughter. "'A woman—' let her be as good as she may, has got to put up with the life her husband makes for her. Your mother has had to put up with a good deal because of me. Mary turned the back of her father's hand to her lips and smiled at him. Well, well, nobody's perfect. But, here Mr. Garth shook his head to help out the inadequacy of words, what I am thinking of is, what it must be for a wife when she's never sure of her husband, when he hasn't got a principle in him to make him more afraid of doing wrong things by others than of getting his own toes pinched. That's the long and short of it, Mary. Young folks may get fond of each other before they know what life is, and they may think it all holiday if they can only get together, but soon it turns into working day, my dear. However, you have more sense than most— and you haven't been kept in cotton wool. There may be no occasion for me to say this, but a father trembles for his daughter, 
and you are all by yourself here.' "'Don't fear for me, father,' said Mary, gravely meeting her father's eyes. "'Fred has always been very good to me. He is kind-hearted and affectionate, and not false, I think, with all his self-indulgence. But I will never engage myself to one who has no manly independence, and who goes on loitering away his time on the chance that others will provide for him. You and my mother have taught me too much pride for that. That's right, that's right. Then I am easy, said Mr. Garth, taking up his hat. But it's hard to run away with your earnings, eh, child? Father, said Mary, in her deepest tone of remonstrance, take pocketfuls of love besides to them all at home was her last word before he closed the outer door on himself i suppose your father wanted your earnings said old mr featherstone with his usual power of unpleasant surmise when mary returned to him he makes but a tight fit i reckon you're of age now you ought to be saving for yourself "'I consider my father and mother the best part of myself, sir,' said Mary, coldly. Mr. Featherstone grunted. He could not deny that an ordinary sort of girl like her might be expected to be useful, so he thought of another rejoinder, disagreeable enough to be always apropos. "'If Fred Vincy comes to-morrow now, don't you keep him chattering. Let him come up to me.'" End of chapter 25《Chapter Twenty Six of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He beats me, and I rail at him. O oh, worthy satisfaction! Would it were otherwise that I could beat him while he railed at me. Troilus and Cressida. But Fred did not go to Stone Court the next day, for reasons that were quite peremptory. From those visits to unsanitary Hounsley streets in search of diamond, he had brought back not only a bad bargain in horseflesh, but the further misfortune of some ailment which for a day or two had deemed mere depression and headache, but which got so much worse when he returned from his visit to Stone Court that, going into the dining-room, he threw himself on the sofa, and, in answer to his mother's anxious question, said, "'I feel very ill.' I think you must send for Wrench. Wrench came, but did not apprehend anything serious, spoke of a slight derangement, and did not speak of coming again on the morrow. He had a due value for the Vincy's house, but the wariest men are apt to be dulled by routine, and on worried mornings will sometimes go through their business with the zest of the daily bell-ringer. Mr. Wrench was a small, neat, bilious man, with a well-dressed wig. He had a laborious practice, an irascible temper, a lymphatic wife and seven children, and he was already rather late before setting out on a four-mile's drive to meet Dr. Minchin on the other side of Tipton, the decease of Hicks, a rural practitioner, having increased Middlemarch practice in that direction. Great statesman air! and why not small medical men? Mr. Wrench did not neglect sending the usual white parcels, which this time had black and drastic contents. Their effect was not alleviating to poor Fred, who, however unwilling as he said to believe that he was in for an illness, rose at his usual easy hour the next morning 
and went downstairs meaning to breakfast, but succeeded in nothing but sitting and shivering by the fire. Mr. Wrench was again sent for, but was gone on his rounds, and Mrs. Vincy, seeing her darling's changed looks and general misery, began to cry, and said she would send for Dr. Sprague. "'Oh, nonsense, mother, it's nothing,' said Fred, putting out his hot, dry hand to her. "'I shall soon be all right. I must have taken cold in that nasty, damp ride.' "'Mamma,' said Rosamond, who was seated near the window, the dining-room windows looked on that highly respectable street called Lowick Gate. There is Mr. Lydgate stopping to speak to someone. If I were you I would call him in. He has cured Ellen Bulstrode. They say he cures everyone. Mrs. Vincy sprang to the window and opened it in an instant, thinking only of Fred and not of medical etiquette. Lydgate was only two yards off, on the other side of some iron palisading, and turned around at the sudden sound of the sash before she called to him. In two minutes he was in the room, and Rosamond went out, after waiting just long enough to show a pretty anxiety, conflicting with her sense of what was becoming. Lydgate had to hear a narrative in which Mrs. Vincy's mind insisted with remarkable instinct on every point of minor importance, especially on what Mr. Wrench had said and had not said about coming again. That there might be an awkward affair with Wrench, Lydgate saw at once, but the case was serious enough to make him dismiss that consideration. He was convinced that Fred was in the pink-skinned stage of typhoid fever, and that he had taken just the wrong medicines. He must go to bed immediately, must have a regular nurse, and various appliances and precautions must be used, about which Lydgate was particular. Poor Mrs. Vincy's terror at these indications of danger found vent in such words as came most easily. She thought it very ill usage on the part of Mr. Wrench, who had attended their house so many years in preference to Mr. Peacock, though Mr. Peacock was equally a friend. Why Mr. Wrench should neglect her children more than others, she could not for the life of her understand. He had not neglected Mrs. Larcher's when they had the measles, nor indeed would Mrs. Vincy have wished that he should. And if anything should happen! Here poor Mrs. Vincy's spirit quite broke down, and her Niobe throat and good-humoured face were sadly convulsed. This was in the hall, out of Fred's hearing, but Rosamond had opened the drawing-room door, and now came forward anxiously. Lydgate apologized for Mr. Wrench, said that the symptoms yesterday might have been disguising, and that this form of fever was very equivocal in its beginnings. He would go immediately to the druggist's and have a prescription made up in order to lose no time, but he would write to Mr. Wrench and tell him what had been done. "'But you must come again. You must go on attending, Fred. I can't have my boy left to anybody who may come or not.' I bear nobody ill-will, thank God, and Mr. Wrench saved me in the pleurisy, but he'd better have let me die if—if—I will meet Mr. Wrench here, then, shall I?" said Lydgate, really believing that Wrench was not well prepared to deal wisely with a case of this kind. "'Pray make that arrangement, Mr. Lydgate,' said Rosamond, coming to her mother's aid, and supporting her arm to lead her away. 
When Mr. Vincy came home, he was very angry with Wrench, and did not care if he never came into his house again. Lydgate should go on now, whether Wrench liked it or not. It was no joke to have fever in the house. Everybody must be sent to now, not to come to dinner on Thursday. And Pritchard needn't get up any wine. Brandy was the best thing against infection. "'I shall drink brandy,' added Mr. Vincy emphatically, as much as to say this was not an occasion for firing with blank cartridges. "'He's an uncommonly unfortunate lad, is Fred. He'd need have.' some luck by and by to make up for all of this, else I don't know who'd have an eldest son. "'Don't say so, Vincy,' said the mother, with a quivering lip. "'If you don't want him to be taken from me—' "'It will worret you to death, Lucy, that I can see,' said Mr. Vincy more mildly. "'However, Wrench shall know what I think of the matter.' What Mr. Vincy thought confusedly was that, the fever might somehow have been hindered if Wrench had shown the proper solicitude about his, the mayor's, family. I'm the last man to give in to the cry about new doctors, or new parsons either, whether they're Bulstrode's men or not. But Wrench shall know what I think, take it as he will. Wrench did not take it at all well. Lydgate was as polite as he could be in his offhand way, but politeness in a man who has placed you at a disadvantage is only an additional exasperation, especially if he happens to have been an object of dislike beforehand. Country practitioners used to be an irritable species, susceptible on the point of honor, and Mr. Wrench was one of the most irritable among them. He did not refuse to meet Lydgate in the evening, but his temper was somewhat tried on the occasion. He had to hear Mrs. Vincy say, "'Oh, Mr. Wrench, what have I ever done that you should use me so? To go away and never to come again? And my boy might have been stretched a corpse!' Mr. Vincy, who had been keeping up a sharp fire on the enemy infection, and was a good deal heated in consequence, started up when he heard Wrench come in, and went into the hall to let him know what he thought. "'I'll tell you what, Wrench, this is beyond a joke,' said the mayor, who of late had had to rebuke offenders with an official air, and now broadened himself by putting his thumbs in his armholes, to let fever get unawares into a house like this. There are some things that ought to be actionable, and are not so. That's my opinion.' But irrational reproaches were easier to bear than the sense of being instructed, or, rather, the sense that a younger man, like Lydgate, inwardly considered him in need of instruction, for, in point of fact, Mr. Wrench afterwards said, Lydgate paraded flighty foreign notions, which would not wear. He swallowed his ire for the moment, but he afterwards wrote to decline further attendance in the case. The house might be a good one, but Mr. Wrench was not going to truckle to anybody on a professional matter. He reflected, with much probability on his side, that Lydgate would by and by be caught tripping too, and that his ungentlemanly attempts to discredit the sale of drugs by his professional brethren would by and by recoil on himself. 
he threw out biting remarks on Lydgate's tricks, worthy only of a quack, to get himself a factitious reputation with credulous people. That cant about cures was never got up by sound practitioners. This was a point on which Lydgate smarted as much as Wrench could desire. To be puffed by ignorance was not only humiliating, but perilous, and not more enviable than the reputation of the weather-prophet. He was impatient of the foolish expectations amidst which all work must be carried on, and likely enough to damage himself as much as Mr. Wrench could wish by an unprofessional openness. However, Lydgate was installed as a medical attendant on the Vincys, and the event was a subject of general conversation in Middlemarch. Some said that the Vincys had behaved scandalously, that Mr. Vincy had threatened Wrench, and that Mrs. Vincy had accused him of poisoning her son. Others were of opinion that Mr. Lydgate's passing by was providential, that he was wonderfully clever in fevers, and that Bulstrode was in the right to bring him forward. Many believed that Lydgate's coming to the town at all was really due to Bulstrode, and Mrs. Taft, who was always counting stitches, and gathered her information in misleading fragments caught between the rows of her knitting, had got it into her head that Mr. Lydgate was a natural son of Bulstrode's, a fact which seemed to justify her suspicions of evangelical laymen. She one day communicated this piece of knowledge to Mrs. Fairbrother, who did not fail to tell her son of it, observing, I should not be surprised at anything in Bulstrode, but I should be sorry to think it of Mr. Lydgate. Why, mother, said Mr. Fairbrother, after an explosive laugh, you know very well that Lydgate is of a good family in the North. He never heard of Bulstrode before he came here. That is satisfactory so far as Mr. Lydgate is concerned, Camden, said the old lady, with an air of precision. But as to Bulstrode— the report may be true of some other son. End of chapter 26an eminent philosopher among my friends, who can dignify even your ugly furniture by lifting it into the serene light of science, has shown me this pregnant little fact. Your pier-glass, or extensive surface of polished steel, made to be rubbed by a housemaid, will be minutely and multitudinously scratched in all directions. But place now against it a lighted candle as a centre of illumination, and, lo, the scratches will seem to arrange themselves in a fine series of concentric circles around that little sun. It is demonstrable that the scratches are going everywhere impartially, and it is only your candle which produces the flattering illusion of a concentric arrangement, its light falling with an exclusive optical selection. These things are a parable. The scratches are events, and the candle is the egoism of any person now absent of Miss Vincy, for example. 
Rosamond had a providence of her own who had kindly made her more charming than other girls, and who seemed to have arranged Fred's illness and Mr. Wrench's mistake in order to bring her and Lydgate within effective proximity. It would have been to contravene these arrangements, if Rosamond had consented to go away to Stone Court or elsewhere, as her parents wished her to do, especially since Mr. Lydgate thought the precaution needless. Therefore, while Miss Morgan and the children were sent away to a farmhouse the morning after Fred's illness had declared itself, Rosamond refused to leave papa and mamma. Poor mamma, indeed, was an object to touch any creature born of woman, and Mr. Vincy, who doted on his wife, was more alarmed on her account than on Fred's. But for his insistence she would have taken no rest. Her brightness was all bedimmed, unconscious of her costume, which had always been so fresh and gay. She was like a sick bird with languid eye and plumage ruffled, her senses dulled to the sights and sounds that used most to interest her. Fred's delirium, in which he seemed to be wandering out of her reach, tore her heart. After her first outburst against Mr. Wrench, she went about very quietly. Her one low cry was to Lydgate. She would follow him out of the room and put her hand on his arm, moaning out, "'Save my boy!' Once she pleaded, "'He has always been good to me, Mr. Lydgate. He never had a hard word for his mother.' As if poor Fred's suffering were an accusation against him. All the deepest fibres of the mother's memory were stirred, and the young man whose voice took a gentler tone when he spoke to her was one with the babe whom she had loved, with a love new to her, before he was born. "'I have good hope, Mrs. Vincy,' Lydgate would say. "'Come down with me and let us talk about the food.' In that way he led her to the parlour where Rosamond was, and made a change for her, surprising her into taking some tea or broth which had been prepared for her. There was a constant understanding between him and Rosamond on these matters. He almost always saw her before going into the sick-room, and she appealed to him as to what she could do for mamma. Her presence of mind and adroitness in carrying out his hints were admirable, and it is not wonderful that the idea of seeing Rosamond began to mingle itself with his interest in the case, especially when the critical stage was passed, and he began to feel confident of Fred's recovery. In the more doubtful time he had advised calling in Dr. Sprague, who, if he could, would rather have remained neutral on Wrench's account. But after two consultations the conduct of the case was left to Lydgate, and there was every reason to make him assiduous. Morning and evening he was at Mr. Vincy's, and gradually the visits became cheerful as Fred became simply feeble, and lay not only in need of the utmost petting, but conscious of it so that Mrs. Vincy felt as if, after all, the illness had made a festival for her tenderness. Both father and mother held it an added reason for his good spirits when old Mr. Featherstone sent messages by Lydgate, saying that Fred must make haste and get well, as he, Peter Featherstone, could not do without him, and missed his visits sadly. The old man himself was getting bedridden. Mrs. Vincy told these messages to Fred when he could listen, and he turned towards her his delicate pinched face, from which all the thick blonde hair had been cut away, and in which the eyes seemed to have got larger, 
yearning for some word about Mary, wondering what she felt about his illness. No word passed his lips, but to hear with eyes belongs to love's rare wit, and the mother in the fullness of her heart not only divined Fred's longing, but felt ready for any sacrifice in order to satisfy him. "'If I can only see my boy strong again,' she said in her loving folly, "'and who knows, perhaps master of Stone Court, and he can marry anybody he likes then.' "'Not if they won't have me, mother,' said Fred. The illness had made him childish, and tears came as he spoke. "'Oh, take a bit of jelly, my dear,' said Mrs. Vincy, secretly incredulous of any such refusal. She never left Fred's side when her husband was not in the house, and thus Rosamond was in the unusual position of being much alone. Lydgate, naturally, never thought of staying long with her, yet it seemed that the brief impersonal conversations they had together were creating that peculiar intimacy which consists in shyness. They were obliged to look at each other in speaking, and somehow the looking could not be carried through as the matter of course which it really was. Lydgate began to feel this sort of consciousness unpleasant, and one day looked down, or anywhere, like an ill-worked puppet. But this turned out badly. The next day Rosamond looked down, and the consequence was that when their eyes met again both were more conscious than before there was no help for this in science and as lydgate did not want to flirt there seemed to be no help for it in folly it was therefore a relief when neighbors no longer considered the house in quarantine and when the chances of seeing rosamond alone were very much reduced but that intimacy of mutual embarrassment in which each feels that the other is feeling something, having once existed, its effect is not to be done away with. Talk about the weather and other well-bred topics is apt to seem a hollow device, and behavior can hardly become easy unless it frankly recognizes a mutual fascination, which, of course, need not mean anything deep or serious. This was the way in which Rosamond and Lydgate slid gracefully into ease, and made their intercourse lively again. Visitors came and went as usual. There was once more music in the drawing-room, and all the extra hospitality of Mr. Vincy's mayoralty returned. Lydgate, whenever he could, took his seat by Rosamond's side, and lingered to hear her music, calling himself her captive, meaning all the while not to be her captive. The preposterousness of the notion that he could at once set up a satisfactory establishment as a married man was a sufficient guarantee against danger. This play at being a little in love was agreeable, and did not interfere with graver pursuits. Flirtation, after all, was not necessarily a singeing process. Rosamond, for her part, had never enjoyed the days so much in her life before. She was sure of being admired by someone worth captivating, and she did not distinguish flirtation from love, either in herself or in another. She seemed to be sailing with a fair wind just whither she would go, and her thoughts were much occupied with a handsome house in Lowick Gate, which she hoped would by and by be vacant. She was quite determined, when she was married, to rid herself adroitly of all the visitors who were not agreeable to her at her father's and she imagined the drawing-room in her favorite house with various styles of furniture. 
Certainly her thoughts were much occupied with Lydgate himself. He seemed to her almost perfect. If he had known his notes so that his enchantment under her music had been less like an emotional elephant's, and if he had been able to discriminate better the refinements of her taste in dress, she could hardly have mentioned a deficiency in him. How different he was from young Plymdale or Mr. Caius Larcher! Those young men had not a notion of French, and could speak on no subject with striking knowledge, except perhaps the dyeing and carrying trades, which of course they were ashamed to mention. They were Middlemarch gentry, elated with their silver-headed whips and satin stocks, but embarrassed in their manners, and timidly jocose. Even Fred was above them, having at least the accent and manner of a university man. Whereas Lydgate was always listened to, bore himself with the careless politeness of conscious superiority, and seemed to have the right clothes on by a certain natural affinity, without ever having to think about them. Rosamond was proud when he entered the room, and when he approached her with a distinguishing smile, she had a delicious sense that she was the object of enviable homage. If Lydgate had been aware of all the pride he excited in that delicate bosom, he might have just as well been pleased as any other man, even the most densely ignorant of humoral pathology or fibrous tissue. He held it one of the prettiest attitudes of the feminine mind to adore a man's preeminence without too precise a knowledge of what it consisted in. But Rosamond was not one of those helpless girls who betray themselves unawares, and whose behavior is awkwardly driven by their impulses, instead of being steered by a wary grace and propriety. Do you imagine that her rapid forecast and rumination concerning house furniture and society were ever discernible in her conversation? even with her mamma, On the contrary, she would have expressed the prettiest surprise and disapprobation if she had heard that another young lady had been detected in that immodest prematureness, indeed would probably have disbelieved in its possibility. For Rosamond never showed any unbecoming knowledge, and was always that combination of correct sentiments, music, dancing, drawing, elegant note-writing, private album for extracted verse, and perfect blonde loveliness, which made the irresistible woman for the doomed man of that date. Think no unfair evil of her, pray. She had no wicked plots, nothing sordid or mercenary. In fact, she never thought of money except as something necessary which other people would always provide. She was not in the habit of devising falsehoods, and if her statements were no direct clue to fact, why, they were not intended in that light. They were among her elegant accomplishments, intended to please. Nature had inspired many arts in finishing Mrs. Lemon's favorite pupil, who, by general consent, Fred's accepted, was a rare compound of beauty, cleverness, and amiability. Lydgate found it more and more agreeable to be with her, and there was no constraint now there was a delightful interchange of influence in their eyes, and what they said had that superfluity of meaning for them, which is observable with some sense of flatness by a third person. Still, they had no interviews or asides from which a third person need have been excluded. In fact, they flirted, and Lydgate was secure in the belief that they did nothing else. 
If a man could not love and be wise, surely he could flirt and be wise at the same time. Really, the men in Middlemarch, except Mr. Fairbrother, were great bores, and Lydgate did not care about commercial politics or cards. What was he to do for relaxation? He was often invited to the Bulstrodes, but the girls there were hardly out of the schoolroom, and Mrs. Bulstrode's naive way of conciliating piety and worldliness, the nothingness of this life, and the desirability of cut glass, the consciousness at once of filthy rags and the best damask, was not a sufficient relief from the weight of her husband's invariable seriousness. The Vincy's house, with all its faults, was the pleasanter by contrast. Besides, it nourished Rosamond, sweet to look at as a half-opened blush-rose, and adorned with accomplishments for the refined amusement of man. But he made some enemies, other than medical, by his success with Miss Vincy. One evening he came into the drawing-room rather late, when several other visitors were there. The card-table had drawn off the elders, and Mr. Ned Plymdale, one of the good matches in Middlemarch, though not one of its leading minds, was in tete-a-tete with Rosamond. He had brought the last keepsake, the gorgeous watered silk publication which marked modern progress at that time, and he considered himself very fortunate that he could be the first to look over it with her, dwelling on the ladies and gentlemen with shiny copper-plate cheeks and copper-plate smiles, and pointing to comic verses as capital and sentimental stories as interesting. Rosamond was gracious, and Mr. Ned was satisfied that he had the very best thing in art and literature as a medium for paying addresses, the very thing to please a nice girl. He had also reasons, deep rather than ostensible, for being satisfied with his own appearance. To superficial observers his chin had too vanishing an aspect, looking as if it were being gradually reabsorbed and it did indeed cause him some difficulty about the fit of his satin stocks, for which chins were at that time useful. "'I think the Honourable Mrs. S. is something like you,' said Mr. Ned. He kept the book open at the bewitching portrait, and looked at it rather languishingly. "'Her back is very large. She seems to have sat for that,' said Rosamond, not meaning any satire, but thinking how red young Plymdale's hands were and wondering why Lydgate did not come. She went on with her tatting all the while. "'I did not say she was as beautiful as you are,' said Mr. Ned, venturing to look from the portrait to its rival. "'I suspect you of being an adroit flatterer,' said Rosamond, feeling sure that she should have to reject this young gentleman a second time. But now Lydgate came in. The book was closed before he reached Rosamond's corner, and as he took his seat with easy confidence on the other side of her, young Plymdale's jaw fell like a barometer towards the cheerless side of change. Rosamond enjoyed not only Lydgate's presence, but its effect. She liked to excite jealousy. "'What a late-comer you are,' she said, as they shook hands. "'Mamma had given you up a little while ago. How do you find Fred?' "'As usual, going on well, but slowly.' I want him to go away, to Stone Court, for example, but your mamma seems to have some objection. Poor fellow, said Rosamond prettily. You will see Fred so changed, she added, turning to the other suitor, 
we have looked to Mr. Lydgate as our guardian angel during this illness. Mr. Ned smiled nervously, while Lydgate, drawing the keepsake towards him and opening it, gave a short scornful laugh and tossed up his chin, as if in wonderment at human folly. "'What are you laughing at so profanely?' said Rosamond, with bland neutrality. "'I wonder which would turn out to be the silliest, the engravings or the writing here,' said Lydgate, in his most convinced tone, while he turned over the pages quickly, seeming to see all through the book in no time, and showing his large white hands to much advantage, as Rosamond thought. "'Do look at this bridegroom coming out of the church. Did you ever see such a sugared invention, as the Elizabethans used to say? Did any haberdasher ever look so smirking?' "'Yet I will answer for it. The story makes him one of the first gentlemen in the land.' "'You are so severe, I am frightened at you,' said Rosamond, keeping her amusement duly moderate. Poor young Plymdale had lingered with admiration over this very engraving, and his spirit was stirred. "'There are a great many celebrated people writing in the keepsake, at all events,' he said, in a tone at once piqued and timid. "'This is the first time I have heard it called silly.' "'I think I shall turn round on you and accuse you of being a goth,' said Rosamond, looking at Lydgate with a smile. "'I suspect you know nothing about Lady Blessington and L.E.L.' Rosamond was not without relish for these writers, but she did not readily commit herself by admiration, and was alive to the slightest hint that anything was not, according to Lydgate, in the very highest taste. "'But, Sir Walter Scott?' "'I suppose Mr. Lydgate knows him,' said young Plymdale, a little cheered by this advantage. "'Oh, I read no literature now,' said Lydgate, shutting the book and pushing it away. "'I read so much when I was a lad that I suppose it will last me all my life. I used to know Scott's poems by heart.' "'I should like to know when you left off,' said Rosamond, "'because then I might be sure that I knew something which you did not know.' "'Oh!' Mr. Lydgate would say that was not worth knowing, said Mr. Ned, purposely caustic. On the contrary, said Lydgate, showing no smart, but smiling with exasperating confidence at Rosamond, it would be worth knowing by the fact that Miss Vincy could tell it me. Young Plymdale soon went to look at the whist playing, thinking that Lydgate was one of the most conceited, unpleasant fellows it had ever been his ill fortune to meet. "'How rash you are!' said Rosamond, inwardly delighted. "'Do you see that you have given offence?' "'What? Is it Mr. Plymdale's book? I am sorry. I didn't think about it.' "'I shall begin to admit what you said of yourself when you first came here, that you are a bear and want teaching by the birds.' "'Well, there is a bird who can teach me what she will. Don't I listen to her willingly?' To Rosamond it seemed as if she and Lydgate were as good as engaged. That they were some time to be engaged had long been an idea in her mind, and ideas, we know, tend to a more solid kind of existence, the necessary materials being at hand. It is true, Lydgate had the counter-idea of remaining unengaged, but this was a mere negative, a shadow cast by other resolves which themselves were capable of shrinking. Circumstance was almost sure to be on the side of Rosamond's idea, which had a shaping activity and looked through watchful blue eyes, 
whereas Lydgate's lay blind and unconcerned as a jellyfish which gets melted without knowing it. That evening when he went home, he looked at his vials to see how a process of maceration was going on, with undisturbed interest, and he wrote out his daily notes with as much precision as usual. The reveries from which it was difficult for him to detach himself were ideal constructions of something else than Rosamond's virtues, and the primitive tissue was still his fair unknown. Moreover, he was beginning to feel some zest for the growing, though half-suppressed feud between him and the other medical men, which was likely to become more manifest, now that Bulstrode's method of managing the new hospital was about to be declared, and there were various inspiriting signs that his non-acceptance by some of Peacock's patients might be counterbalanced by the impression he had produced in other quarters. Only a few days later, when he had happened to overtake Rosamond on the Lowick Road, and had got down from his horse to walk by her side until he had quite protected her from a passing drove, he had been stopped by a servant on horseback with a message calling him into a house of some importance where Peacock had never attended, and it was the second instance of this kind. The servant was Sir James Chetham's, and the house was Lowick Manor. End of chapter 27《Chapter Twenty Seven of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyot. First Gentleman, all times are good to seek your wedded home, bringing a mutual delight. Second Gentleman, why true, the calendar hath not an evil day for souls made one by love, and even death were sweetness if it came like rolling waves while they two clasped each other and foresaw no life apart. Mr. and Mrs. Casaubon, returning from their wedding journey, arrived at Lowick Manor in the middle of January. A light snow was falling as they descended at the door, and in the morning, when Dorothea passed from her dressing-room avenue the blue-green boudoir that we know of, she saw the long avenue of limes lifting their trunks from a white earth, and spreading white branches against the dun and motionless sky. The distant, flat, shrank in uniform whiteness and low-hanging uniformity of cloud. The very furniture in the room seemed to have shrunk since she saw it before. The stag in the tapestry looked more like a ghost in his ghostly blue-green world. The volumes of polite literature in the bookcase looked more like immovable imitations of books. The bright fire of dry oak boughs burning on the logs seemed an incongruous renewal of life and glow like the figure of Dorothea herself as she entered, carrying the red leather cases containing the cameos for Celia. She was glowing from her morning toilet, as only healthful youth can glow. There was a gem-like brightness on her coiled hair and in her hazel eyes. There was a warm red life in her lips. Her throat had a breathing whiteness above the differing white of the fur, which itself seemed to wind about her neck and cling down her blue-gray pelisse with a tenderness gathered from her own, a sentient commingled innocence which kept its loveliness against the crystalline purity of the outdoor snow. As she laid the cameo cases on the table in the bow-window, she unconsciously kept her hands on them, immediately absorbed in looking out on the still white enclosure 
which made her visible world. Mr. Casaubon, who had risen early complaining of palpitation, was in the library giving audience to his curate, Mr. Tucker. By and by Celia would come in her quality of bridesmaid, as well as sister, and through the next weeks there would be wedding visits received and given, all in continuance of that transitional life understood to correspond with the excitement of bridal felicity, and keeping up the sense of busy ineffectiveness, as of a dream which the dreamer begins to suspect. The duties of her married life, contemplated as so great beforehand, seemed to be shrinking with the furniture and the white vapor-walled landscape. The clear heights where she expected to walk in full communion had become difficult to see even in her imagination. The delicious repose of the soul on a complete superior had been shaken into uneasy effort and alarmed with dim presentiment. When would the days begin of that active, wifely devotion which was to strengthen her husband's life and exalt her own? Never, perhaps, as she had preconceived them, but somehow, still somehow, in this solemnly pledged union of her life, duty would present itself in some new form of inspiration, and give a new meaning to wifely love. Meanwhile there was the snow and the low arch of dun vapour. There was the stifling oppression of that gentlewoman's world, where everything was done for her, and none asked for her aid, where the sense of connection with a manifold pregnant existence had to be kept up painfully as an inward vision, instead of coming from without in claims that would have shaped her energies. What shall I do? Whatever you please, my dear. That had been her brief history since she had left off learning morning lessons and practicing silly rhythms on the hated piano. Marriage, which was to bring guidance into worthy and imperative occupation, had not yet freed her from the gentlewoman's oppressive liberty. It had not even filled her leisure with the ruminant joy of unchecked tenderness. Her blooming, full-pulsed youth stood there in a moral imprisonment which made itself one with the chill, colorless, narrowed landscape, with the shrunken furniture, the never-read books, and the ghostly stag in a pale, fantastic world that seemed to be vanishing from the daylight. In the first minutes when Dorothea looked out, she felt nothing but the dreary oppression. Then came a keen remembrance, and, turning away from the window, she walked round the room. The ideas and hopes which were living in her mind when she first saw this room nearly three months before were present now only as memories. She judged them as we judge transient and departed things. All existence seemed to beat with a lower pulse than her own, and her religious faith was a solitary cry, the struggle out of a nightmare in which every object was withering and shrinking away from her. Each remembered thing in the room was disenchanted, was deadened as an unlit transparency, till her wandering gaze came to a group of miniatures, and there at last she saw something which had gathered new breath and meaning. It was the miniature of Mr. Casaubon's Aunt Julia, who had made the unfortunate marriage, of Will Ladislaw's grandmother. Dorothea could fancy that it was alive now. The delicate woman's face, which yet had a headstrong look, a peculiarity difficult to interpret, 
Was it only her friends who thought her marriage unfortunate? Or did she herself find it out to be a mistake, and taste the salt bitterness of her tears in the merciful silence of the night? What breadths of experience Dorothea seemed to have passed over since she first looked at this miniature. She felt a new companionship with it, as if it had an ear for her and could see how she was looking at it. Here was a woman who had known some difficulty about marriage. Nay, the colors deepened, the lips and chin seemed to get larger, the hair and eyes seemed to be sending out light, the face was masculine and beamed on her with that full gaze which tells her on whom it falls that she is too interesting for the slightest movement of her eyelid to pass unnoticed and uninterpreted. The vivid presentation came like a pleasant glow to Dorothea. She felt herself smiling, and, turning from the miniature, sat down and looked up as if she were again talking to a figure in front of her. But the smile disappeared as she went on meditating, and at last she said aloud, Oh, it was cruel to speak so. How sad! How dreadful! She rose quickly and went out of the room, hurrying along the corridor, with the irresistible impulse to go and see her husband, and inquire if she could do anything for him. Perhaps Mr. Tucker was gone, and Mr. Casaubon was alone in the library. She felt as if all her morning's gloom would vanish if she could see her husband glad because of her presence. But when she reached the head of the dark oak there was Celia coming up, and below there was Mr. Brooke, exchanging welcomes and congratulations with Mr. Casaubon. "'Dodo!' said Celia, in her quiet staccato, then kissed her sister, whose arms encircled her, and said no more. I think they both cried a little in a furtive manner, while Dorothea ran downstairs to greet her uncle. "'I need not ask how you are, my dear,' said Mr. Brooke, after kissing her forehead. Rome has agreed with you, I see. Happiness, frescoes, the antique, that sort of thing. Well, it's very pleasant to have you back again. And you understand all about art now, eh? But Casaubon is a little pale, I tell him. A little pale, you know. Studying hard in his holidays is carrying it rather too far. I overdid it at one time. Mr. Brooke still held Dorothea's hand, but had turned his face to Mr. Casaubon about topography, ruins, temples. I thought I had a clue, but I saw it would carry me too far, and nothing might come of it. You may go any length in that sort of thing, and nothing may come of it, you know. Dorothea's eyes were also turned up to her husband's face, with some anxiety at the idea that those who saw him afresh after absence might be aware of signs which she had not noticed. "'Nothing to alarm you, my dear,' said Mr. Brooke, observing her expression. "'A little English beef and mutton will soon make a difference. "'It was all very well to look pale, sitting for the portrait of Aquinas, you know. "'We got your letter just in time. "'But Aquinas now. "'He was a little too subtle, wasn't he? "'Does anybody read Aquinas?' "'He is not indeed an author adapted to superficial minds,' said Mr. Casaubon meeting these timely questions with dignified patience. "'Would you like some coffee in your own room, uncle?' said Dorothea, coming to the rescue. "'Yes, and you must go to Celia. She has great news to tell you, you know. I leave it all to her.' 
the blue-green boudoir looked much more cheerful when celia was seated there in a pelisse exactly like her sister's surveying the cameos with a placid satisfaction while the conversation passed on to other topics do you think it nice to go to rome on a wedding journey said celia with her ready delicate blush which dorothea was used to on the smallest occasions it would not suit all not you dear for example said dorothea quietly no one would ever know what she thought of a wedding journey to rome mrs cadwallader says it is nonsense people going on a long journey when they are married she says they get tired to death of each other and can't quarrel comfortably as they would at home and lady chettam says she went to bath celia's color changed again and again seemed to come and go with tidings from the heart as it a running messenger had been it must mean more than celia's blushing usually did celia has something happened said dorothea in a tone full of sisterly feeling have you really any great news to tell me it was because you went away dodo then there was nobody but me for sir james to talk to said celia with a certain roguishness in her eyes i understand it is as i used to hope and believe said dorothea taking her sister's face between her hands and looking at her half anxiously celia's marriage seemed more serious than it used to do it was only three days ago said celia and lady chettam is very kind and are you happy yes we're not going to be married yet because everything is to be got ready and i don't want to be married so very soon because i think it's nice to be engaged and we shall be married all our lives after i do believe you could not marry better kitty sir james is a good honourable man said dorothea warmly he has gone on with the cottages dodo he will tell you about them when he comes shall you be glad to see him of course i shall how can you ask me only i was afraid you would be getting so learned said celia regarding mr casaubon's learning as a kind of damp which might in due time saturate a neighbouring body End of chapter twenty eight chapter twenty nine of middlemarch by george eliot this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by margaret espyot i found that no genius in another could please me my unfortunate paradoxes had entirely dried up that source of comfort goldsmith one morning some weeks after her arrival at lowick dorothea but why always dorothea was her point of view the only possible one with regard to this marriage i protest against all our interest all our effort at understanding being given to the young skins that look blooming in spite of trouble for these too will get faded and will know the older and more eating griefs which we are helping to neglect in spite of the blinking eyes and the white moles objectionable to celia and the want of muscular curve which was morally painful to sir james mr casaubon had an intense consciousness within him and was spiritually a hungered like the rest of us he had done nothing exceptional in marrying nothing but what society sanctions and considers an occasion for wreaths and bouquets it had occurred to him that he must not any longer defer his intention of matrimony 
and he had reflected that in taking a wife a man of good position should expect and carefully choose a blooming young lady the younger the better because more educable and submissive of a rank equal to his own of religious principles virtuous disposition and good understanding on such a young lady he would make handsome settlements and he would neglect no arrangement for her happiness in return he should receive family pleasures and leave behind him that copy of himself which seemed so urgently required of a man to the sonneteers of the sixteenth century times had altered since then and no sonneteer had insisted on mr casaubon's leaving a copy of himself moreover he had not yet succeeded in issuing copies of his mythological key but he had always intended to acquit himself by marriage and the sense that he was fast leaving the years behind him that the world was getting dimmer and that he felt lonely was a reason to him for losing no more time in overtaking domestic delights before they too were left behind by the years and when he had seen dorothea he believed that he had found even more than he demanded she might really be such a helpmate to him as would enable him to dispense with a hired secretary an aid which mr casaubon had never yet employed and had a suspicious dread of mr casaubon was nervously conscious that he was expected to manifest a powerful mind providence in its kindness had supplied him with the wife he needed a wife a modest young lady with the purely appreciative unambitious abilities of her sex is sure to think her husband's mind powerful whether providence had taken equal care of miss brooke in presenting her with mr casaubon was an idea which could hardly occur to him society never made the preposterous demand that a man should think as much about his own qualifications for making a charming girl happy as he thinks of hers for making himself happy as if a man could choose not only his wife but his wife's husband or as if he were bound to provide charms for his posterity in his own person when dorothea accepted him with effusion that was only natural and mr casaubon believed that his happiness was going to begin he had not had much foretaste of happiness in his previous life to know intense joy without a strong bodily frame one must have an enthusiastic soul mr casaubon had never had a strong bodily frame and his soul was sensitive without being enthusiastic it was too languid to thrill out of self-consciousness into passionate delight it went on fluttering in the swampy ground where it hatched thinking of its wings and never flying his experience was of that pitiable kind which shrinks from pity and fears most of all that it should be known it was that proud narrow sensitiveness which has not mass enough to spare for transformation into sympathy and quivers thread-like in small currents of self-preoccupation or at best of an egoistic scrupulosity and mr casaubon had many scruples he was capable of a severe self-restraint he was resolute in being a man of honor according to the code he would be unimpeachable by any recognized opinion in conduct these ends had been attained but the difficulty of making his key to all mythologies unimpeachable weighed like lead upon his mind and the pamphlets or pererga as he called them 
by which he tested his public and deposited small monumental records of his march, were far from having been seen in all their significance. He suspected the archdeacon of not having read them. He was in painful doubt as to what was really thought of them by the leading minds of Brasenose, and bitterly convinced that his old acquaintance Carp had been the writer of that depreciatory recension which was kept locked in a small drawer of Mr. Casaubon's desk, and also in a dark closet of his verbal memory. These were heavy impressions to struggle against, and brought that melancholy embitterment which is the consequence of all excessive claim. Even his religious faith wavered with his wavering trust in his own authorship, and the consolations of the Christian hope in immortality seemed to lean on the immorality of the still unwritten key to all mythologies. For my part, I am very sorry for him. It is an uneasy lot at best to be what we call highly taught and yet not to enjoy, to be present at this great spectacle of life and never to be liberated from a small hungry shivering self, never to be fully possessed by the glory we behold, never to have our consciousness rapturously transformed into the vividness of a thought, the ardor of a passion, the energy of an action, but always to be scholarly and uninspired, ambitious and timid, scrupulous and dim-sighted. Becoming a dean or a bishop would make little difference, I fear, to Mr. Casaubon's uneasiness. Doubtless some ancient Greek has observed that, behind the big mask and the speaking trumpet, there must always be our poor little eyes peeping as usual, and our timorous lips more or less under anxious control. To this mental estate mapped out a quarter of a century before, to sensibilities thus fenced in, Mr. Casaubon had thought of annexing happiness with a lovely young bride, but even before marriage, as we have seen, he found himself under a new depression in the consciousness that the new bliss was not blissful to him. Inclination yearned back to its old, easier custom, and the deeper he went on in domesticity, the more did the sense of acquitting himself and acting with propriety predominate over any other satisfaction. Marriage, like religion and erudition, nay, like authorship itself, was fated to become an outward requirement, and Edward Casaubon was bent on fulfilling unimpeachably all requirements, even drawing Dorothea into use in his study, according to his intention before marriage, was an effort which he was always tempted to defer, and but for her pleading insistence it might never have begun. But she had succeeded in making it a matter of course that she should take her place at an early hour in the library and have work either of some reading aloud or copying assigned her. The work had been easier to define because Mr. Casbon had adopted an immediate intention. There was to be a new paragon, a small monograph on some lately traced indications concerning the Egyptian mysteries whereby certain assertions of Warburton's could be corrected. References were extensive even here, but not altogether shoreless, and sentences were actually to be written in the shape wherein they would be scanned by Brasenose and a less formidable posterity. These minor monumental productions were always exciting to Mr. Casaubon, Digestion was made difficult by the interference of citations, 
or by the rivalry of dialectical phrases ringing against each other in his brain. And from the first there was to be a Latin dedication about which everything was uncertain, except that it was not to be addressed to Carp. It was a poisonous regret to Mr. Casaubon that he had once addressed a dedication to Carp, in which he had numbered that member of the animal kingdom among the viros nullo evo perituros, a mistake which would infallibly lay the dedicator open to ridicule in the next age, and might even be chuckled over by Pike and Tench in the present. Thus Mr. Casaubon was in one of his busiest epochs, and as I began to say a little while ago, Dorothea joined him early in the library where he had breakfasted alone. Celia at this time was on a second visit to Lowick, probably the last before her marriage, and was in the drawing-room expecting Sir James. Dorothea had learned to read the signs of her husband's mood, and she saw that the morning had become more foggy there during the last hour. She was going silently to her desk when he said, in that distant tone which implied that he was discharging a disagreeable duty, "'Dorothea, here is a letter for you, which was enclosed in the one addressed to me.' It was a letter of two pages, and she immediately looked at the signature. "'Mr. Ladislaw, what can he have to say to me?' she exclaimed, in a tone of pleased surprise. "'But,' she added, looking at Mr. Casaubon, "'I can imagine what he has written to you about.' "'You can, if you please, read the letter,' said Mr. Casaubon, severely pointing to it with his pen, and not looking at her. "'But I may as well say beforehand—' that I must decline the proposal it contains to pay a visit here. I trust I may be excused for desiring an interval of complete freedom from such distractions as have been hitherto inevitable, and especially from guests whose desultory vivacity makes their presence a fatigue. There had been no clashing of temper between Dorothea and her husband since that little explosion in Rome, which had left strong traces in her mind that it had been easier ever since to quell emotion than to incur the consequence of venting it. But this ill-tempered anticipation that she could desire visits which might be disagreeable to her husband, this gratuitous defense of himself against selfish complaint on her part, was too sharp a string to be meditated on until after it had been resented. Dorothea had thought, that she could have been patient with John Milton, but she had never imagined him behaving in this way, and for a moment Mr. Casaubon seemed to be stupidly undiscerning and odiously unjust. Pity that new-born babe, which was by and by to rule many a storm within her, did not stride the blast on this occasion. With her first words, uttered in a tone that shook him, she startled Mr. Casaubon into looking at her, and meeting the flash of her eyes. "'Why do you attribute to me a wish for anything that would annoy you? You speak to me as if I were something you had to contend against. Wait at least till I appear to consult my own pleasure apart from yours.' "'Dorothea, you are hasty,' answered Mr. Casaubon, nervously. Decidedly, this woman was too young to be on the formidable level of wifehood, unless she had been pale and featureless, and taken everything for granted. 
"'I think it was you who were first hasty in your false suppositions about my feeling,' said Dorothea, in the same tone. The fire was not dissipated yet, and she thought it was ignoble in her husband not to apologize to her. "'We will, if you please, say no more on this subject, Dorothea.' "'We will, if you please, say no more on this subject, Dorothea. I have neither leisure nor energy for this kind of debate.' Here Mr. Casaubon dipped his pen, and made as if he would return to his writing, though his hand trembled so much that the words seemed to be written in an unknown character. There are answers which, in turning away wrath, only send it to the other end of the room, and to have a discussion coolly waived when you feel that justice is all on your own side is even more exasperating in marriage than in philosophy. Dorothea left Ladislaw's two letters unread on her husband's writing-table, and went to her own place, the scorn and indignation within her rejecting the reading of these letters, just as we hurl away any trash towards which we seem to have been suspected of mean cupidity. She did not in the least divine the subtle sources of her husband's bad temper about these letters. She only knew that they had caused him to offend her. She began to work at once, and her hand did not tremble. On the contrary, in writing out the quotations which had been given to her the day before, she felt that she was forming her letters beautifully, and it seemed to her that she saw the construction of the Latin she was copying, and which she was beginning to understand, more clearly than usual. In her indignation there was a sense of superiority, but it went out for the present in firmness of stroke and did not compress itself into an inward articulate voice pronouncing the once affable archangel a poor creature. There had been this apparent quiet for half an hour, and Dorothea had not looked away from her own table when she heard the loud bang of a book on the floor, and turning, quickly saw Mr. Casaubon on the library steps clinging forward as if he were in some bodily distress. She started up and bounded towards him in an instant. He was evidently in great straits for breath. Jumping on a stool, she got close to his elbow, and said, with her whole soul melted into tender alarm, "'Can you lean on me, dear?' He was still for two or three minutes, which seemed endless to her, unable to speak or move, gasping for breath. When at last he descended the three steps, and fell backward in the large chair which Dorothea had drawn close to the foot of the ladder, he no longer gasped, but seemed helpless and about to faint. Dorothea rang the bell violently, and presently Mr. Casaubon was helped to the couch. He did not faint, and was gradually reviving, when Sir James Chetham came in, having been met in the hall with the news that Mr. Casaubon had had a fit in the library. "'Good God!' This is just what might have been expected, was his immediate thought. If his prophetic soul had been urged to particularize, it seemed to him that fits would have been the definite expression alighted upon. He asked his informant, the butler, whether the doctor had been sent for. The butler never knew his master to want the doctor before, but would it not be right to send for a physician? When Sir James entered the library, however, Mr. Casaubon could make some signs of his usual politeness, and Dorothea, who in the reaction from her first terror 
had been kneeling and sobbing by his side, now rose and herself proposed that someone should ride off for a medical man. "'I recommend you to send for Lydgate,' said Sir James. "'My mother has called him in, and she has found him uncommonly clever. She has had a poor opinion of the physicians since my father's death.' Dorothea appealed to her husband, and he made a silent sign of approval. So Mr. Lydgate was sent for, and he came wonderfully soon, for the messenger, who was Sir James Chetham's man and knew Mr. Lydgate, met him leading his horse along the Lowick Road and giving his arm to Miss Vincy. Celia, in the drawing-room, had known nothing of the trouble till Sir James told her of it. After Dorothea's account, he no longer considered the illness a fit, but still something of that nature. "'Poor dear Dodo! How dreadful!' said Celia, feeling as much grieved as her own perfect happiness would allow. Her little hands were clasped and enclosed by Sir James as a bud is enfolded by a liberal calyx. "'It is very shocking that Mr. Casaubon should be ill, but I never did like him. And I think he is not half fond of Dorothea, and he ought to be, for I am sure no one else would have had him. Do you think they would?' "'I always thought it a horrible sacrifice of your sister,' said Sir James. "'Yes, but poor Dodo never did do what other people do, and I think she never will.' "'She is a noble creature,' said the loyal-hearted Sir James. He had just had a fresh impression of this kind, as he had seen Dorothea stretching her tender arm under her husband's neck and looking at him with unspeakable sorrow. He did not know how much penitence there was in the sorrow. "'Yes,' said Celia, thinking it was very well for Sir James to say so, but he would not have been comfortable with Dodo. "'Shall I go to her? Could I help her, do you think?' "'I think it would be well for you just to go and see her before Lydgate comes,' said Sir James, magnanimously. "'Only don't stay long.' While Celia was gone, he walked up and down, remembering what he had originally felt about Dorothea's engagement, and feeling a revival of his disgust at Mr. Brooke's indifference. If Cadwallader, if everyone else had regarded the affair as he, Sir James, had done, the marriage might have been hindered. It was wicked to let a young girl blindly decide her fate in that way, without any effort to save her. Sir James had long ceased to have any regrets on his own account, his heart was satisfied with his engagement to Celia. But he had a chivalrous nature. Was not the disinterested service of woman among the ideal glories of old chivalry? His disregarded love had not turned to bitterness. Its death had made sweet odors, floating memories that clung with a consecrating effect to Dorothea. He could remain her brotherly friend, interpreting her actions with generous trustfulness. End of chapter 29